the base. timing and being solid, keeping mm. the timing. Trombone is maybe it's it's a different thing. Mm. Yeah. So how did you come into playing instruments? Did you do that from early childhood or? Yeah, I guess it was. You know, I have I grew up in Uppland's Väsby, mm. in a suburb of Stockholm, and it's um, very good. The communal and the, the school, municipal yeah. music, music school, school. and those times in the eighties, that was really good. And I was just fortunate on meeting the right people. So it turned out for me, like my teacher that I got first time, he he was also a semi-professional jazz trumpeter. So this was like uh, in in Grundskolan, so to speak. In the yeah, yeah. Education. So I, I started with you know the recorder <laughs> yeah. in the fourth grade. And then I quickly moved into, I started on trumpet, oh. but then I kind of, I've been falling down, you know, trumpet tuba, trombone <laughs> <laughs> tuba. Mm. And, uh, you know, for me it was really great. And, you know, my grand, father was grand uh, father. Yeah. He was also a musician. So I guess there's some. So you heard a lot in your childhood as well. Yeah, he your, passed away early, uh, but my mom, mom could play a little bit. So. But this is I, I'm, I grew up in Borås when I was a kid. I went to uh, I played a lot of football, but then I went to the, the municipal music music school, and I played piano, mm. and I played the trumpet. So I, oh, I, yeah. I but but the unfortunate thing with uh, trumpet and uh, t- and trombone is the embouchure. Uh, you need to have your stamina. Yeah. So if you don't play, it's not only that I can't sort of, I can't remember how to play it. It really sounds shit when you don't have your lips. In no, it's, it's like an uh, athlete. You it's have an athlete. To, you have yeah. to tr- practice and train. And I had a periods of time where I practiced, you know, up to four or five hours a day. Really? And, you know. For the trumpet or for the or trombone? Trombone and tuba, you know. Mm. Yeah. Interchangeably. And I also, I did my military service in, Music. In the music, of course. Group music. All right. Armenian music. So Did you do the marching at the, around yeah, the castle? Yeah, yeah. What oh. was the biggest like, musical event that you had during your time until now? You in know, terms of playing in public or the, the most, the biggest highlight, so to speak, from a musical point of view? I don't know. I mean, Claude, if it's kind of fun. When I was in the army band, we played, you know, Bär, Valhallen and did yeah. these big shows. And, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, I played yeah. festivals and it's hard. I mean, it's more when you play jazz, it's more about, it doesn't matter you know, if it's a fancy venue, if it's, it's, it's who just you play who you're playing with and yes. the, the, the connection you get with the other players. It's almost extra cool if you play at uh, dive uh, places, right? Or <laughs> some kind of. Yeah, but some, so I played a lot of, you know, private parties and uh, so, and sometimes it just happens. But, but let's rephrase the question. Which uh, moment is the biggest musical moment in terms of who you've been jamming with? Like if you, you know, semi-professional, then the pros joining sometimes and you, you get starstruck, you meet yeah, some big legends. One big, I shared, I was playing um, Westerås Konserthus one day. I think there was the inauguration. And after us, Pove Rammel played. Oh. Mm. And that was really, that was starstruck, you know. Yeah. We had our dressing room next to him and we can hear him, you know, rehearsing and warming up. And, you know, we met in the hallway and exchanged a few words. 
to or like the the pre-band so to speak to to that to him, yeah or? so i knew a couple of people from westeros and he had composed you know a piece of music and i was playing in the band but then uh, but then you actually said you 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 played with the legend quite recently well exactly so i met with uh, uh jan allan uh, famous trumpet yeah player. exactly famous trumpet player and um so we have a kind of a jam session group in Uppsala and uh, you know so and occasionally the the man who organizes that has you know a lot of connections and you know he he talks to all these legends because he's the chairman of Lars Gullin Selskapet so he's kind of preserving the legacy of some you know jazz you know Lars Gullin famous jazz exactly and you know writing books and keeping track of what they've been doing Mm-hmm. So this John Allen just came uh, around somehow? Or? Yeah, so basically he doesn't get a lot of gigs, you know, when you're 87. <laughs> 87. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he think it's, you know, of course he loves been, to play. They lo- you know, these guys, they love to play, you know, this has been their entire life. So, and, you know, we, so we, you know, came with the car and we took him to Uppsala and he sat down and played and then we, you know. Can you get, what's his most, I don't know him that well. Can you mention, you know, some of the, his most famous moments, so to speak, from... Uh, John Allen. I mean, he was part of this whole, the whole Swedish jazz explosion in the fifties, you know, Norlen and all of yeah. those settings, but he's probably mostly known for the general public as being part of Hasso Tage, all the shows. So he um, was in the band behind Hasso Tage? Exactly. Or? And you know, they, it was interactive. So, and also if you've seen Picasso's Aventure, the movie with, with them, he has a part in there when he plays the trumpet. And, mm. and I, I think if you if you Google John Allen and you listen to, you will recognize some very classical Swedish jazz highlights that they sort of, uh, even jazz with some traditional music, Swedish folk music that has been jazzified, so to speak. Yeah, and yeah, John yeah. Allen has some very and famous late, pieces. Lately he's been, he's really has a kind of a soft, mellow approach and, uh, usually nowadays he plays trios or smaller bands mm. so it's not he's not like a muscle you know <laughs> big band trumpeter type of guy he's more a mellow lyrical player yeah yeah i always feel uh i get some kind of minority complex you know when i meet uh, <laughs> these kind of people henrik you're great at uh, piano yeah, playing not, and, not, uh, not like this and uh, the other henrik here is awesome as well in, in Playing different musical instruments. I'm only good at playing or singing bad karaoke. So, um, yeah, I, I wish I'd had some more talent when it comes to music. Right. And I actually like, uh, you know, dance band music as well, which <laughs> is not really a compliment, uh, according to some people. We, we always had, uh, had the joke, uh, I guess you know, uh, Lars Albertson as well. And, uh, the, the classical joke was, uh, Lars, it a dance band for spot this is spotify times is it under who's owning the playlist this friday yeah, damn friday, it friday music <laughs> and then Lars is more lots. hard rock guy i guess <laughs> yeah if i remember it right it's fun music is beautiful because it's sort of we always we have connections to it in different yeah, ways and exactly and for me it was also the connection with music and mathematics is has been really following me so when when i went after you know i went to Uppsala to study I, you know, I did a lot of math and then I actually wrote a paper on kind of music in math. Mm, So it was about, you know, if you, uh, if you have a piano, basically you have to go into physics and harmonic series and, you know, if you, so a piano is a compromise. 
to have to to minimize kind of um, frequencies and how they interact. Because mm-hmm. you know, a, a natural harmonic series is you know integer based. So um, a, a piano, the errors are evenly distributed. You know, so it's uh, the twelfth root of the two. keys. You mean on the piano? Yeah, the, fre- yeah. the frequency relationship. You know, yeah. or the keys for the keys. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of evenly distributed. So um, a major third is fourteen hundredths of a semitone too high, and there are a couple of these things. And so, yep. so what the paper I did was about. Well, let's say you have other other number of keys instead of twelve. You know, can you get a better system? Right. Where you can have be closer to pure in tune physical harmonics, yeah. and you can prove that the next best system has fifty three keys. I think. Really? Oh. Yeah, so cool. But maybe that's that's your angle, Anders. If if you if you attack music from the math perspective and get hooked in that way, and you learn a musical instrument like mathematically then you can with your brain get into the music brain well i think i have to resort to um that was actually the first album that was ai produced uh, was with amber uh, the the actual software for that and there was this kind of um uh, person that was always a bit frustrated with that uh, she couldn't sing or she couldn't play an instrument uh, and i can recognize with that but she really was interested in music and uh, when AI came about, then you can use software to actually do produce like bands and different instruments and, and then also help with the song. It actually was a big release and it basically democratized a bit, I would say, music to people that are not that talented. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like that. But there's so also, that, if you haven't heard, this, there's this classic book called Gödel Escherbach. If you okay, like no, Douglas Hofstadt, a writer. Yeah. And it also talks about the, the relationship between, you know, Gödel's incompleteness theory, MC yeah. Escher, these, you know, these paintings with the staircases and these right. optical yeah, yeah. illusions. illusions mm-hmm. yeah. and, and Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach music. And, you know, e- before AI, there was a lot of, you know, analysis of, uh, you know, fugues and the type of music Bach made. And it, it's actually very sophisticated, the structure mm-hmm. mathematically. And there are people trying to describe this type of music in terms of algebra, like mm. groups and rings and, and this type Categorical of Categorical theory yeah. in, in music. And also <laughs> trying to, you know, recreate this type of... So I, I can rec- really recommend that book. It's a really good... That's interesting. So then this is cross-disciplinary. Like yeah, so he was trying to, to connect these, you know, three geniuses together yeah. and see... So it's a, it's a n- nice book. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, let us uh, welcome you here. And it's a true pleasure to have you here, Henrik Löv, who um, is an old friend and colleague of mine. And we worked together during Spotify years as well. And um, and you have very interesting background, I think, you know, from both being worked with Oracle and you have a PhD that's interesting for many reasons. And I hope we get into that. And also now working at the Karolinska University Hospital as well and continuing in, in a very interesting field. So, yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Henrik. And um, uh, perhaps, you know, how would you like to describe yourself if we start a bit from the background and, and just, you know, who is Henrik Löf? How would you describe it? Yes, I'm, I mean, I, um, I really like to understand how things work. So I'm a little bit of a tinkerer. Uh-huh. And, you know, also, you know, 
being music, I can enjoy being on the artistic side and really not understanding things, but just see what happens. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm not super rigid in in all times. But Isn't that like deep learning? You don't really understand how it works, but yeah, you still tinker with it. Kind of. <laughs> I guess we'll come <laughs> and into of that. course, you're doing jazz in that case. Yeah. So improvising and exactly. you know being doing things you really can't explain. You know, a lot of times you can't if you're in in playing something and you can't really you know stuff just happens mm -hmm. unconsciously and that's. So driven be, by your unconscious mind in some way. I'm to, being in the zone, you know, right. where you really are one with the problem or, so that's kind of been yeah. stuff I've been doing. So uh, I have, you know, a little bit of talent for math and abstract thinking, obviously mm -hmm. led to the career. But. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, when I had my, my flipper days when I play flipper games, you know, you come into the zone and suddenly you just focus 100% on something and you don't even think consciously. Exactly. You just, and you just do stuff. You just yes. do and, you know, I guess gamers can get into that, you know, feeling as well. If you have <coughs> the flow. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cool. And, um, yeah, if we start with your PhD, perhaps, you know, can, can you start uh, talking a bit about how, why did you start, um, you know, pursuing a PhD? Yeah. So, at, you know, I was very into math uh, in, at Uppsala, so I, I did kind of, I picked together classes, you know, randomly. I didn't go do a program or stuff like that. So I ended up doing a lot of math. But I also, when, when I came to Uppsala, I already know, knew how to program. So I, I led, I taught myself and we had also in my high school. And so I did um, uh, Pascal, Turbo Pascal. So I was, you know, I, I remember the first course programming class, I kind of, I aced the exam, you know, I didn't just breeze through the first classes. Yeah. What was that more programming based, do you mean, or math based or what type of courses do you mean? Yeah. So, I mean, that was just a regular C++, you yeah. know, introductory course. And yeah. so it was not really that, but then, um, I really was more interested in math, you know, and, uh, philosophy and, you know, being deep thoughts and, uh, but then that kind of converged at, at the end, I got stuck into, you know, numerical analysis and a large scale computing, parallel computing. How did that come about? You know, it was a strong tradition in, in Uppsala. Ah, okay. And uh, it really kind of, for me, computing things, mm -hmm. you know, was really interesting. And which department me. are we talking about here that is focusing on parallel computing at this time? So. Now it's, it's called the Institution for Informationsteknologi. Uh, but at the time there was a, when I started, there was separate, several separate departments mm. and they, they were called Teknisk Databehandling, which is <laughs> like, <laughs> so they were, you know, pioneers. What year was this approximately? When I started. Yeah. Well, yeah. When this department Teknisk Databehandling existed. 90, 96, 96, 97. Yeah. And, um, so they came, you know, with the whole baggage of, you know, the first computers in Sweden, you know, you know, traditional, you know, a long time ago mm. working with computers and they, because of that, they did some of the programming classes. And then there, there was also departments of uh, computer systems and, you know, data logi, computer science that did also some programming. So I kind of, you know, gravitated toward the math oriented mm. and not the discrete math, but more the continuous math, mm -hmm. you know, partial differential equations, you know, solving flows and, you know, 
And I guess a little bit of that was, you know, sound was one of the things that got me interested in, in that. So I did my master's thesis on uh, sound flow through uh-huh. curved ducts. Ah, doing, you know, curved ducts. What, what does that mean? Ducts. So ducts. basically a trombone. Mm. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, so I want, we did a study on like, so what happens when, when you bend a tube and there's a wave front coming through it, you know, how, how, how sharp can you bend the tube? Yeah. And, and the trombone is a, a tube bent a lot of ways. Yeah. So it, so there was a guy there who did, um, you know, that kind of attracted me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you tried to model that uh, using math as well? Or? Yeah, so it's it was very simple. I mean, it was just a you know wave equation, so it's it's not super fancy math, but it's more the whole computational aspect. You have to resolve that geometry using a computational mesh, mm-hmm. and you know have to you know work. So it's kind of like um, if you have a connection to AI. So I spent my PhD studying iterative solvers for linear systems. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's close to back propagation. And also this whole optimized, you know, stochastic, stochastic gradient descent, mm. those type of algorithms. So my PG was around realizing those type of algorithms. And that has been done before, but my, my kind of interest was in how to do that for uh, this type of emerging shared memory architectures. And, and if we just unpack that a bit more, um, so this shared memory, are we speaking more uh, like this kind of supercomputer kind of uh, so, gray? Yeah, so mach- in, the, in the mid nineties, you know, actual multiprocessors, you know, big Oracle database, you know, some mm. microsystems type of systems, IBM, mm. they were growing and they were like multi socket. Um, yeah. So what happened was that Uppsala managed to recruit one of the chief architects of Sun Microsystems, you know, oh. Erik Hagerstein. So now we're talking uh, Sun Microsystems, what's their operating system called? Solaris. Solaris. And then equivalent of Solaris you had in the digital world, you had uh, Alpha. Yeah, so exactly, so DEC Alpha. DEC Alpha. And then you had uh, AIX. AIX is IBM. And Hope UX. Hope UX, right. So all the risk platforms. That was the risks wars, you know. So so if you you contrast that, that we had the old mainframes, and then we had uh, sort of on the other end of the spectrum, PCs. Yeah. And here we had this mid-size style. It really was pushed by running big relational databases like the Mm. Oracles. And they, they, you couldn't distribute them over a network. So they had to be tightly coupled, um, with multiprocessors. So that was really IBM and Sun and, you know, Itanium. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of interesting problems. And Eric Hagerstein had been designing those systems and he wanted to move back from Silicon Valley to Sweden. And so he brought him, you know, money and funding. So my, my PhD was, you know, looking at modern emerging architectures, comp- computer architecture and applying, you know, computational yeah. algorithms on those. So my thesis was around, uh, non-uniform memory access. So <laughs> what happens when you do, um, multi-socket, um, systems is that you can't, you have to distribute, you have to do communication between the sockets. So Sockets, you, have, you mean basically CPU cores? Yeah, well, CPU cores. This was before multi-core. Okay. Uh, this is before multi-core. Yeah, so multi-core was, you know, at the end of my PhD, we started looking at multi-cores. They okay. become you know, like 
you know, available. There. So multiprocessors or something. Multiprocessors was the, you know, there was a single mm-hmm. core. Mm-hmm. Single core multiprocessors. Now single core was one socket. Mm-hmm. So one CPU, one core, one socket, and you connected all of those sockets together. Mm-hmm. Some sort of mesh. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, then they, they all had local memory. Yeah. And then if data could be placed in either local or in another sockets memory. And if you wanted to access that memory, there became a remote access. Mm-hmm. It was all orchestrated by you know, a cache co- his, a coherency protocol and was kind of built into the system. But the effect was that if you didn't understand, so data could be taken. So it was non-uniform access time to memory. And, and that's the kind of, that, that's, that's, you know, mainstay now. So NUMA type of optimizations is done like on the OS level for all of these computational things. But, but at this time, point in time, the nineties, mainframes, the, the, what was OS, gamla IBM mainframe, what is operating system called? I forget. Oof, fyra, I forget. Not OS 400, that was... No, OS 400 is another one <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah. It's called said something. Oh, whatever, yeah. And then you had... But w- could you just elaborate a little bit? Uh, you said it briefly. Uh, there was a new breed of relational databases that was driving a need for a different type of computer architecture. Exactly. So the Oracle databases, um, multi-threading came along. So that was really the enabler from a programming perspective, how you could run on these... Uh, multiprocessors. So the idea is that you have one OS kernel that you can, you know, and multiple sockets and threads. So the, the programming, you never programmed against processors, you programmed using threads. Mm-hmm. So P threads, uh, POSIX style threads was kind of emerging. And perhaps you can just elaborate, you know, what's the difference between having multiprocess and multi-threading? I mean, multiprocess has also been around, but then you have interprocess communication. Yeah. So you could have sockets is one that we use for networking yeah. and or shared memory was another way of mapping uh, memory address space, memory segments to communicate. So, But in short, you can say that threads basically share the memory and processes have a different memory and you have to you know move the, the, the data between the memory places. Yeah, so I mean, a thread is really just another program counter and abstract abstraction for that and sharing the exact same address space yeah. as the process. So they, they live inside that process. And would you argue for me that it does not know the details here, was Oracle built as a relational database and the other relational like DB2s, were they built in a different way or were you now trying to program them? No, I mean, it came from, inc- I mean, this was OLTP, uh, OLAP, OLAP, you know, okay. you know yeah. territory. And you wanted to grow and grow the capacity of the database, you know, how much processing. Did OLAP really exist at that time? Sorry? Did OLAP, the online uh, I think so, yeah. I mean, um, processing the really? first data warehouse and is, is all this whole Kimball modeling and, and all that's that. Not, that's, uh, that's 18th, 19th as well. Yeah, that, exactly, that's late mm-hmm. 80s. So uh, OLAP was definitely a thing. Yeah, and, really well. um, cool. And it was basically... And perhaps we could just elaborate. OLTP versus OLAP, so to speak. Well, what's the main difference, uh, would you say? So on, OLTP is online transactional processing. Yeah. And that's really, you know, microservices or stuff like that. This is transactions going on in real, you know, when you're if doing... If you have it. an e-commerce website. Transactional processing. Yeah. I'm going to speak. Sorry. Yeah. Transactional processing. So yeah. e-commerce or what have you, when you, you capture, you know, uh, online 
transactions. And the, the thing was that... Would you agree that, you know, you can say that OLTP is more for operational type of databases versus OLAP is more for analytical use cases? Exactly. Afterwards? So the thing is that they run on the same technology. Mm. They both OLTP and OLAP run, run on regular databases. You know, after a while you have Teradata and Vertica and, you know, all of these type of specialized solutions. Um, kind of like Snowflake today yeah. would be an example, but the, the main per, thing was that you wanted to isolate the transaction because the long running transaction analytical workloads you couldn't run them on the same instant mm. so that's where you know elt and all that came yeah. around you had to move the data off the transactional database to the warehouse where you, you say elt on purpose or did you mean etl oh sorry etl <laughs> i mean elt is actually you know people are speaking more about elt these yeah, that's days more of a modern hadoop yeah. thing that came so back then etl etl was the extract transform load mm -hmm. so and and you know all of that i, I mean i haven't really worked with bi and in, in those traditional you know i came when i later on i came right on the elt hadoop stack that was my first kind of but I, I knew databases and during my PhD, I, you know, took a PhD class in, you know, databases. So there's mm -hmm. Tore Risch, a professor in, in Uppsala. And so I studied like query optimization uh, for C for SQL and, you know, these low level optimizations. Okay. So just to summarize your thesis work a bit. Um, so you basically had these sockets and you want the access to memory was not uniform. So it was different time scales, basically that yeah, you so could access. I mean, in high performance computing, it's all about, you know, squeezing the last bit of performance. So the systems Eric Hagerstein brought with him were very special system because their idea was to take an entire server and do an, do an interconnect, a very high performance interconnect and connect another server to make this a huge, you know, shared memory machine. Right. And uh, then you could have a remote access penalties of about five or six times slower mm. when you when you kind of pushed over there interconnect. They were all running one OS kernel mm. on, on kind of over this whole system. Perhaps we can just, if you try to get an overview of, of different type of computing architectures in, in some way, you can think about this kind of mainframe where you have you know, CPUs and, and memory being accessed in, in a large, you know, mainframe in some way. I mean, you can think more big data type of Hadoop type of architectures where you have mid-level, mid-range kind of computers being uh, connected together, but really the latency between them is, is much higher than the mainframe type of access. And then we can potentially take the third, which is more AI GPU kind of yeah, structure. Yeah, so actually... That's kind of, in, so that's what really what I was, so the team Eric put together yeah. was a computer architecture team. So it's about, you know, how to build efficient software computers. So there was about CPU design mm. and, you know, especially around cache memories and, you know, memory access, that was his specialty. Mm. So what do you think the future is? I mean, a lot of people still use the term HPC, high performance computing in different ways. And, and you know, you can use uh, supercomputers like Cray machines and whatnot for... Yeah, but I mean, see, the, the trend now is, you know, more on a re, you know, FPGAs or more yeah. custom. So we can talk about this for a long time, but do you have this more, more slow where, you know, you get more and more transistors and then at a point 
Yeah. And Moore's law was basically saying that the number of transistors per volume in some way or area was doubling every 18 months or something, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I remember when we, back in the days when I was, we were at the manufacturing process of 90, 120 nanometers or 90 nanometers. And I think the fabs today, they can produce like five or mm. seven nanometers. Yeah. So, I, I mean, little, so yeah. this has been kind of going on and we, we're all speculating where will it stop. Mm. But what happens is like when you have very large dyes with a lot of cores, actually communicating on the dye will take time. Mm. So even with the speed of light, if you, you know, have a certain size, so, and that led to, you couldn't build this monolithic CPUs where you use all the transistors for one big core. So you had to partition them into multi-core processors. Mm. So that was, you know, the main driver. And I think that what we see now with Apple and the M1 CPU, yep. you start building more and more accelerators and custom hardware. That was also, if you go back to 386 and those type, we had an external F FPU and... And Amiga at your time. Exactly. Yeah. Had we a, had all the... Was it Blitter or Blitter? The copper and the Blitter. Blitter, yeah. yeah. So different co-processors, basically. So you're trying, you're, you're basically starting to optimize the computer or, or, or hardware to do things, one thing really, really exactly. well. Exactly. Excel, putting hardware acceleration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have one of my friends from that time, Soran Radovich, he's working now with uh, Samba Nova, mm -hmm. which is... Um, an interesting company that basically take a PyTorch um, graph and renders it in hardware to uh, run it basically in hardware. Using so basically it. you do FPGA yes. in yeah. for the specific kind yeah. of model and, and you just print it, so to speak, on FPGA? Yeah, or some way of you know, really optimize it for uh, AI type workloads. I saw something about the, the, the upcoming um, Google Pixel 6 phone. And um, they, you know, for started to launch their own ship now as well, a tensor ship, so to speak, that they put in the phone, which is uh, replacing the Qual Qualcomm kind of ship that otherwise is dominating all the mobile phones that we have. Uh, but uh, you, I think we can see that the increased, like, specialized type of CPUs that they have there, I think they have the normal CPU, the general type of processor, and then they have GPUs. They have some kind of DSP data processing unit as well, I think. And then they have the TPU tensor processing unit kind of thing. And they all have different purposes. And there seems to be an increasing specialization in, in different type of yeah, processors. Basically, you have a large and larger transistor budget, but mm -hmm. you, know, you can't make one stuff bigger. You have to just put in more things and making them work together. Yeah. So it's, it's really, I mean, you know, if you talk mainframes, then you had like a, a CPU board <laughs> and then you have the memory and it was really distributed. Now everything just shrink, shrinking. So now a mobile yeah. phone, you fits on a single chip, you know, yeah. the system on a chip type of. But the trend here really is for specialization in some ways, because I, I it's I miniaturization and, you know, um, trying to, uh, you know, it always been about what type of workloads are important to sell the chips mm -hmm. and then, you know, uh, try to support those as, best as possible. And the, the last 10 years has also been a lot about saving power. But if, if I throw in a curveball now, so Elon Musk is now producing chips with the use case application in mind. So I, he's taken the specialization of the hardware infrastructure all the way down to what do I need to do when I do autonomous driving? I think that says something on the trend. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at uh, Apple, for instance, you know, they started buying CPUs out of EBM, 
and now the power. Then they moved to Intel. And obviously Intel couldn't, you know, keep up with the innovation. And now they made a really smart move starting their own chip yeah. manufacturing because they can customize them for their software and their ecosystem. And now they're ahead. You know, and it seems chance. everyone is uh, starting to produce their custom processors now, where it, it's starting to become an increased... Yeah, I mean, it's time. also... Th the other trend is then the movement out of x86 Intel to ARM. Right. Which right. It's, and ARM is more of a, it's not, uh, more of an open. Could ecosystem. we go back? What what is the difference between Intel? It's just the instruction set architecture, basically. Yeah. And ARM is a different. Yes. So ARM came out of the embedded world, like smaller type mm. of um, CPUs for uh, not for personal computers. So the legacy starting point is different, and then all of a sudden, when you you start going down and down and down, oh, this starting point is maybe better. Yeah. It's so the M1. It's really the first, you know, Apple, that's an ARM based chip. So you have to, you know, recompile all your code and, you know, so, and that's the third time Apple does this, you know, big binary transition. So, so binary transition, what does that mean? You need to recompile everything you build. No, so Apple has this transition and uh, translation layer now. So you, ah. you can run x86 code, but it gets translated into ARM code. <laughs> and it's really, you know, fast and transparent. But, but speaking about the general problem that we have, Nvidia, of course, is very dominating today, especially when it comes to GPUs and, and AI. And they have their own uh, GPUs that is completely dominating. And this is a potential problem. And um, we can, though, see oh. that more and more other companies are starting to produce GPU similar type of processors. But then NVIDIA bought ARM. <laughs> exactly. So, right? but they, they, so ARM is more of an intellectual property company. Yes. Are, are you scared about that, that uh, NVIDIA bought ARM as well? I don't, I mean, I'm not in that business anymore. And mm -hmm. honestly, um, I mean, no. But if you phrase it like this, NVIDIA was dominating the service base in some way and, and the GPUs for a, AI you know, data clusters in a large extent, but they didn't dominate in the mobile phones in, in a large extent. No, I mean, NVIDIA, there, there was just luck, you know, that, so I was actually part of the first, I did a class in like, 2000 in, in Norway, where mm -hmm. we, we talked about GPU, GPGPU programming, general mm -hmm. purpose GPU programming. Because that's this is early, right? Yeah. And the first real commercial chip was the cell processor that was powering PS3, the mm -hmm. console. And people were kind of wiring up these. Um, and then I think at that time, CUDA came around the first like framework for doing this type of workload. So, you know, we, Knowing my history, you know, this started with the thinking machines in the 80s, you know, the connection machines that has the same type of uh, SIMD, single instruction, multiple data type of architecture that some GPUs also kind of work. So it's, mm. it's an old way of working, but some, someone come up, came up with the idea that, okay, all this texture processing is really a SIMD architecture. And then you could, but in those days, no, you didn't have proper floating points. So support. CMD is basically a single instruction, multiple data. Yeah. Right? So, um, yeah. And I mean, the, the connection machine had 65,000 one bit processors. So it was kind of an extreme uh, version of that. Yeah. We went the down a rabbit hole here again, but I think yeah, it's I interesting like to, it. uh, to, but, yeah, to but have could, some low level. Could we, okay. Go up from the rabbit hole. What did we see? 
what do we what can we conclude from this rabbit hole what, 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 yeah, what, what, what do you think what? about the future of like computing architectures uh, I, it, actually you know i'm for me it's just sub a substrate you know i don't really think about it's i don't say it's a solved problem but for general purpose computing it's just you know low power low cost and you know the whole distributed way of working has really won so the whole shared memory there's a not so much demand for these big shared memory systems and so so the, the, the when obviously if you're compiling stuff on your laptop they're running on eight or you know six yeah. cores and you know there's, but there's the old main, mainframes are they going down more and more you would say i don't think you can sell a lot of these like 128 yeah. socket you know big ass machines anymore yeah but it's an interesting topic then you know you know to digitize or AIFI Europe, HPC computing versus GPU mm -hmm. computing. And, and, you know, and it's clearly decentralized. It's clearly GPUs and, and, and still we're spending a lot of money in other yeah, types of technology. That said, if you look at an AI algorithm, it's not like they're paralyzed, you know, it's more like you divide, you have a parameter scan mm. and you, you run many, many problems on, but it's never that you, you do a backwards propagation in parallel over, you know, compute cluster. I mean, that's a very hard problem to accept. You know, it's, it's more like you can use a cluster. It's more like embarrassingly parallel. So you, you run. You Unless you do jobs. GPT three kind of stuff and you have to split the model as well. Uh, maybe, the... but that's more really advanced stuff. But yeah. I mean, the application of, as I understand it, AI is kind of far from what the HPC community is doing when you take one, one big model and paralyze it on a cluster. Yeah. So yeah, that, sure. that's a bottom line. If you truly understand the core computational problem of AI, the, the applied AI, not what we're doing, it sort of points in a direction to what type of architecture would suit that. And what are we saying we are, are we, are we playing in the right or are we investing technically in architecture that is not really the most optimal? Are you speaking about EU now? Yeah, and maybe. Then, uh, I would say yes, but let, let's not. <laughs> let's not. But I mean, the, the whole. I mean, right now we're in an acceleration phase, so mm. the libraries, uh, you know, bottom line is it's matrix matrix multiplication yeah. that a mm. lot of deep learning is doing, and so you accelerate that to a point, and you can, you know do it in hardware and whatever. But because what I'm saying is if we truly understand what that is all about, then, then you, we could say what type of technology, hardware architecture fits that problem best. It's not that rocket science to see what is matching and not matching in terms of what, okay, what hardware types should we really be better at? In order no, to but it's just like, even if you could understand this, you know, building that chip, you know, building a ship is like several hundred million dollar investment, yeah. you know, getting it to work. And so, and, and so that's also where this trend of FPGAs comes in because then they're becoming more and more powerful. And then you. And what is FP? So it's like field prom programmable gate arrays. So what does a, that mean? What, what, like is, what a, does that do? It's a um, kind of a, a template uh, ship. So you solve something. You so you can kind of um, program the ship to do uh, mm. things. So it's a, a normal CPU you kind of hard code everything and you, you, you manufacture it. Awesome. And uh, if we try to, yeah, we get can out continue of the this talk. Get out of yes, the rabbit hole. Let's try that. Okay. So, so you, you made your PhD. If you were to summarize in, in one sentence, if you could, what was the main contribution you would say from your PhD work? 
some conclusion that well, we could phrase very I wasn't briefly. really, I mean, you know, PhD in science, I mean, the only kind of what I, we studied, um, one of the problems was when you start up a program, mm. you initialize all the data. And what happens then is that most operative systems at that time and still, they use the first touch policy. So basically the first time you touch a, a page or some memory, get bound to that CPU or that you know, memory where it was touched. Mm. So if initialization is serial, when you start up your program, and then you start up another threads, and they get scheduled to the other cores, right. they will get remote, a lot of remote accesses. So, <clears throat> so what we studied was a way of redistributing the pages. So, oh, okay. so we started so that. after the initialization, you can redistribute the exactly. application. So to it's, them? it's technical, but you have a, a transaction look aside buffer, a TLB, okay. and that controls the paging. And what you could do is you can reset those mappings and then reallocate those pages. So when you do that, there's a penalty. So you have to move the data. But you have a long-running computation, you can amortize that initial cost. So, so ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to be smart to to remove as, as much as uh, remote access memory. I mean, the, the, the real, what we want to do is have an intelligent system that could measure uh, remote accesses and move pages where they would be suited, you know, mm. in a kind of optimization problem. Awesome. What happened after your PhD? I did a postdoc. At? At Stanford University. What did you do then? So I, you know, um, it's also kind of a, yeah. So and Stanford is one of the premier uh, universities in the world, right? Uh, yeah, and, and even in this field, premier, I would say, close to Silicon Valley. Yeah, so, so my, my work was uh, with, uh, they were called petroleum engineering at that time. Mm -hmm. Now they're called energy resources engineering. <laughs> so my department had contacts there and... Uh, Basically, they wanted me to come and teach a class. Okay. Ah. So I was teaching like high performance computing programming. I mean, oh, writing right. fast code. That's super cool. Because, you know, all the students these days, they learn Java or Python or something. And, you know, that doesn't cut it when you want to do high performance computing. So I, you have to learn, you know, C or Fortran or something. So that was, and then, you know, there was also an opportunity to do research, paralyzing algorithms. Like that was my trade. So I did a combo of those. Cool. And when was this? How many years were you in, Sta uh, in Stanford? Uh, it, was, yeah, I, it was just, you know, one and a half years between 2006 and 2008. Mm. Then it took a step into the um, industry in some way. Right. Yeah. So that I, I came back to Sweden uh, for private reasons, basically, and um, personal reasons. And then um, I ended up doing a research project at my old apartment. And then I was looking for work. And then uh, this, um, they were called B BEA web system. So if you're familiar with yeah. BEA web logic, was yeah. there a kind of core middleware. product, middleware. middleware, you know, application server type of thing? They had acquired a Stockholm startup called Appeal Virtual Machines, um, basically to be able to run their stuff on the Itanium CPU. So uh, Sun Microsystems, who owned the JVM space, they didn't want to build a JVM for Itanium. 
So Intel made a deal with Appeal to, you know, they've started out building a virtual machine out of KTH and a very talented team. And then um, they got funding from Intel and that bootstrapped that company. They got a working product and they were acquired by BEA, which in turn went acquired by Oracle. Oracle, yes. And then <coughs> Oracle acquired Sun. And then <laughs> the original right. JVM team was merged with the <laughs> JVM team at uh, yes. And Itanium was an Intel based architecture, right? Or yeah. So it was yeah. a, you know, very special type of uh, kind of a do it all. But how how was this sequence? I mean, like BIA bought by Oracle, Oracle bought Sun. Mm. In, in what time frame is all this happening? Because this three is three or four years. It's quite fast, right? A lot. I don't of know when in Appeal was acquired. That was before my time. Mm. Um, but you know, uh, the Oracle acquisition happened during my tenure there. I was there for four years, and during that time, Oracle acquired. BA and Sun or Sun was acquired. And could we, because I, I used to sell Sun machines, you see, I mm -hmm. was working at Mercantil at the Nord, you know, Atia today. And we were selling this, this is 99, right? Yeah. So and we're in Uppsala, we were on a few who had a Sun Fire 15K, for instance. You yeah. Remember super that cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and we were selling one of those, those big boxes, mm -hmm. some of them. We, the ISP, the internet service mm -hmm. provider, they love their Sun Solaris boxes. Anyway, they were the shit. What happened? So, you know, something happened a couple of years later that allowed Oracle to acquire them because they would have been really expensive to buy in, in 2000. Yeah. What? Because some, there was a little bit like everything. Solaris was really up and coming. But do you think it did? Did something happen? Was it a story behind here, or is mm, it? It's, there's been a lot of good writing about the demise of Sun Microsystems. That's and, what I'm talking about. <laughs> and to be honest, you know, you know, obviously my old advisor was, you know, chief architect at Sun, so he has a lot of baggage mm. there. And my pro project was sponsored by Sun as well, and I came along. Um, but it, I mean. Obviously, they underestimated the whole web trend. Yeah. Uh, so they 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 come, came out with, and they also they made a couple of big you know mistakes. But they bet on a so the, after the Ultra Spark three, yeah, which was great, which was great, and they spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars on CPU programs that failed. So mm -hmm. it was the Rock processor and Ultra Spark five. And basically Intel caught up mm. and the demand for these big multiprocessors was, you know, now it was about multi-core chips. Multi-core instead, right? So there was another product line with some called Niagara, mm -hmm. which was more leaner and more heavily threaded for kind of work, ISP work, web workloads. Mm -hmm. And that was the surviving product line. Yeah. Cool. And, and then you worked, started working for Oracle for a number of years. And can you speak a bit, what was your, the main focus? That yeah. So I, I mean, I started in the, um, what's called the sustaining engineering team. So we were doing critical customer escalations and, you know, hunting down bugs. Mm -hmm. So a Japanese bank could call us and, you know, I've been running this workload for two days and it crashes, you know, what's wrong. Hmm. 
And so I was digging through core dumps and, you know, log files, yeah. trying to correlate, finding what was wrong. And then we, uh, for, you know, we made this. And this was on Java-based systems, right? Yeah, was, exactly. So yeah. that was on the appeal virtual machine, like uh, not on the hotspot in the sun. So it was called mm-hmm. J-Rocket was the product name. Right. And um, so we um, ended up, you know, analyzing and fixing and releasing. So we made a patch on the JVM or sometimes we, we did ourselves, sometimes the engineering team did, and then we released that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a lot about those type of work. Um, There's a lot of high stress situations that big Yeah, so are. I, you know, you were sometimes called into, uh, you know, meetings with customers and they were all usually very <laughs> pissed. <laughs> and then, um, af- after that, I moved into, um, like the performance team. So we did a lot of, you know, performance testing. So very important to have no performance regressions or no a consistent performance for every release of the JVM. And, you know, I was on that team when we merged with Sun mm-hmm. and that's where we, you know, at the end, we did a lot of work on the G1 garbage collector. It was kind of G1, in, in yes. development, in development at the time. And what is a garbage collector in this, <laughs> in the Java world? <laughs> so, um, garbage collection is a kind of a tool to help you manage memory. So the idea is that you just allocate memory and you never bother about releasing it. So the, the role of the garbage collection is to understand if memory is used or not and reclaim it. Mm-hmm. As if you program, say, you know, C++, uh, you have this new operator and delete operator. So mm-hmm. you have to, if you don't delete your memory, you will have a memory leak and you will run out of memory. <laughs> so that's the whole, I mean, the whole point of a virtual machine is to manage both the, you know, write ones run everywhere, bridging the hardware and also manage memory. And so the holy grail for garbage collection was really to um, make it as lean as possible and not interfere with your, you know, everybody running, you know, early Android phones, (laughs) remember, you know, suddenly everything just froze and, you know, and that happens as well, you know, sometimes, you know, not so much these days. And frozen basically means that the phone went into some garbage collection mode and it went through all the memory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, 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 and sometimes to, to and now the, yeah. now the, I don't remember the name of it, but the guys now they have done this, you know, completely concurrent GC, which was, you know, a very is, big is that technical. CMS thing or is that something else? Now CMS was the earlier one. So G1, oh. it's, it's a new one, ZGC, ZGC, I think oh, okay. the, the project is called. So. It's completely concurrent. So it, it reclaims memory while your program is running. You know, you, you can remember in a Java program, if you have a linked list, you have a reference to nodes. This is a big deal. This must have been a big deal to solve this. Yeah. And if you kind of remove one of those nodes, you have to release that memory, but you have to, you know, the system has to do introspection and see that, okay, this is not uh, live or so it's extremely interesting subject in itself. I mean, it's a research field in itself, itself right? To, to do this in a yeah. concurrent way, I guess. Yeah. So I think it's like a holy grail to have a completely concurrent GC. It's like a big technical breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the problem, it's not if generational yet, if I understand it. So they want to, that's the next hurdle. Yeah. Generation. What was it? It was called like uh, young, old and permanent or something. Yeah, exactly. Or, so what was it? it's, 
all of this memory type of thing is all about exploiting locality. So in a lot of programs, you generate uh, lots of data uh, that is released very quickly. Used and and uh, the idea is to um, uh, store that you know or keep track of those in in a special generation. And if if um, objects are referred to or are live, they are get promoted to old space or some other space where uh, where you have an other type of algorithm. So it's just an optimization to on based on an observation that there are a lot of short-lived objects. It seems like a lot of custom uh, heuristic and hard-coded rules to, to do garbage collection. Sounds almost like a perfect um, application for AI in some way. Don't you think? I think the timescales doing predictions on AI, um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, very, has to be extremely efficient. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and also you can't do a mistake, you know, you have to be very accurate. So AI, you know, doing fussy predictions and, oh, I forgot 80%, you know, effective <laughs> and leaving 20% of objects behind. It's not really <laughs> well said. Cool. That was, uh, sounds like a really amazing things being actually part of, you know, making patches to the Java virtual machine itself uh, must been, yeah, you must have learned a lot, I guess, from those Yeah, days. and expected it was also a extremely talented team. Mm. So it was really grown out of KTH, you know, that generation, lots of very, very good programmers. But is, is this, is it a Swedish team or is it a European no team? No Swedish global? team. But support, you said you're supporting a Japanese bank, but uh, what was, was it more for Swedish customers or were you no, working so worldwide? They, they sold their products internationally. And so they had to ramp up, you know. But it has to do with the startup in Sweden. Exactly. They yeah. started it and, you know, people like, you know, Sten Garmark, who is now the head of product at Spotify, he was the development manager at, you know, that team. Yeah. And so there are a lot so of... So all, all the people, the talented team that you work with there, you can sort of, they have all gone down different... A lot of us went to Spotify, <laughs> were recruited at some point. Um, and most of those people have, and some are still at mm. Spotify, but... Um, I mean, let's take that step then. How, how did you get into Spotify? Well, it was basically headhunted, mm. um, you know, at in 2010, 11, something. Mm. Um, so someone came up to you and asked, you know, we're doing this and, and what was your initial you know, type of work that you did at Spotify at that time? <laughs> it was really actually interesting. So I, my, I came along with the Facebook integration. Right. So I was, I spent my time in that team building that integration with Facebook. Yeah. But do you remember, like, what was the appeal to go to Spotify? I mean, like, uh, what, 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 what well, was the Well, it was really more about after the Sun Microsystems acquisition. Um, my manager was on the West Coast in the United States. And, you know, I had small kids. And I, you know, didn't want to work at 2, 9 p.m. every day and sitting in meetings. No. So I think it was more that situation. I wanted to do something locally here in, in Stockholm. Mm. And also, of course, it's interesting. I mean, again, I'm passionate about music and, you know, ah, collecting exactly. records. And, and so, of course, building a music service was... So working with your core competence, combining it with your core passion, that is cool. I mean, a lot of the early people, of course, with Spotify were passionate about music. So I think it's one of, one of the... 
point on the you know secret sauce, isn't it? I mean, like Hall to Me, House Music, and uh, some other guys. It wasn't part of Spotify, though. And I had a horrible taste in music as well, but I still worked there. Anyway, uh, okay. So the fa- Facebook integration. I, I think a lot of people don't know about this part of history and Spotify. No, it's so. really interesting because I mean, Spotify was on the verge of you know extinction and dying. Mm-hmm. They weren't growing enough, and then. I don't know all the details. I have to ask, you know, Gustav or somebody how, how that works. But apparently, Donnelly X struck a deal with um, Zuckerberg to basically it was about onboarding new users. So the idea was to post music on the Facebook feed and get people to click, and then you know, download the Spotify client and you know, create uh, more users. Uh, so the, that was then it was you know extremely complicated flows connecting you know Facebook and Spotify. You know we had these double accounts and you know and more or less one click place from Facebook as well, right? Yeah. So we tried to streamline that flow, mm-hmm. and, and you remember that time we didn't have a good web player. There was no mobile client, so everything was you know optimizing the download of the desktop client which was like an 85 megabyte payload <laughs> and so we did you know you could see people dropping off waiting for the download and then we had to make the track they clicked play install the app boot it up you know create the account play the track <laughs> so super <laughs> hacky a lot of hacky things going on um, yeah, so, so it, we had a lot of accounts that weren't, I guess it was a lot of, you know, problems trying to maintain all these kind of accounts being created, right? Exactly. So what, what happened is was I got uh, basically left with the whole login system with Spotify. So I was kind of system owner for the login system uh, accounts and everything. And so basically ran, ran the whole thing myself with support of two of the guys who built most parts of the system. So it was like, you know, if you couldn't log into Spotify, they called me. <laughs> that was the deal. And, you know, very, very stressful <laughs> type of my life. <laughs> but uh, it was also very interesting because you get, you know, everybody wants to, want, needs to interact with the, the, the initial bootstrapping. And, uh, and uh, so we were another guy who ran the whole uh, access point. We were like the two people who Two controlled people. The, the central nervous system of, of yeah. the whole suit. Yeah. And when you're talking about login now, we, we, I mean, like you can both log in based on your direct Spotify login, mm. but then you have this like login with your Facebook uh, ID and stuff like that. Yeah, but that was part of exactly. Yeah, exactly. But that's like common ground now with OAuth and those type of uh, yeah. OpenID Connect flows. So Facebook was early on. Fixing that. Yeah, so it's not, uh, it's just standardized more or less. Uh, but was it standardized then? No, I wouldn't <laughs> say so. And, and we had, you know, secret backdoor APIs to Facebook mm-hmm. to solve some of the problems. Yeah, it was a really close collaboration, I guess, in that time, right? Yeah. And, you know, I remember the launch. I mean, especially remember one of the Zuckerberg held this demo. Uh, and, you know, where he was trying to introduce this uh, integration and, you know, everything was super flaky and not really ready <laughs> for production, <laughs> but we wanted it to work. And, you know, there was this hiccup just before he was supposed yeah. to go on stage and uh, everybody was, you know, panicking, but somehow we managed to... We fixed that and then, and then actually... 
the, the demo went well. It's, yes, I remember it, yes. Ah. So it did go well with the actual demo. At that yeah, time. I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, people were sleeping at the office. <laughs> Cool. Well, I can see we, we would have spent an hour when we haven't really moved into um, Karolinska University Hospital yet. So, so let's try to move a bit faster, I think. But we have several cool topics in Spotify. I mean, like you were, you were, for one, you were there when they moved to GCP, right? Exactly. So what, That's um, an interesting topic. So yeah. actually, if you talk about data, so we had this, you know, Europe's largest Hadoop cluster, you know, Anders here was really... <laughs> Destroying, know, it. destroying it with running <laughs> spark on it uh, and um, you know it was clear that this was not sustainable and we were actually running out of you know electricity in our, some of our data centers and we had to do something not memory electricity yeah <laughs> or you know it, it became not it not very economical at, at that point and um, and then you know there are a lot of good architects and they you know we what if I made, we talked, I guess, with both vendors at that time, Amazon and Google was just starting up. Azure wasn't really a thing. But we actually started on um, Amazon, right? I and think then they tried on premise and then to Google, right? I, I don't remember the other days, but as far as I remember, we all the, always had our own data centers. I think we started on okay. Amazon. All right. Yeah, doesn't matter. And then um, Google was interesting on onboarding a big uh, international client. They were hungry. Yeah, on GCP. And... Um, Spotify became that client. Host a child. Yeah. And I wasn't really part of that whole migration, but I was one of the first people using BigQuery. Mm. And so that was a real revelation when we, you know, came on to uh, BigQuery and, the, 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 you know, coming from Hive, <laughs> it was like a godsend. Uh, and perhaps we need to explain a bit what Hive and, and BigQuery really is, but uh, yeah. how would you describe the two? In a brief way. Yeah, so it's, I mean, Hadoop came out of a programming model called MapReduce. It was not really, um, you know, Luigi, the system we had for it, made it accessible through Python, but you still had to be thinking about, you know, keys and values and, you know, reducer and, you know. For me, came from a parallel programming perspective, that's like no problem. I, I could get this it. This was your home turf. Yeah. But I mean, um, it was really, you know, at that point, you know, Java, Hadoop, you know, output input formats, really complicated work, you know, broke all the time. So Hive was just a way of uh, bridging, you know, a SQL layer on top of, um, so basically generating MapReduce jobs um, to run SQL queries. So Hive is, is to simplify it, is, isn't Hive some sort of that, if you want to run a warehouse style or ULAP style stuff on, exactly. in Hadoop yeah, it's a, world, it's to make, you uh, go at well, Hive is one example. Yeah. So Hadoop and HDFS is all about, you know, file-based access. Mm. And so what Hive does, if I understand correctly, is just create the metadata to form tables around mm. those files. And, you know, there's some caching, optimization, and things going on. And it's like a compiler to actually produce MapReduce jobs. Yeah, I think it's kind of query. evolved a little bit now, but, it, you know, you can Gave birth all this, you know, uh, Impala. Yeah. You know. Cassandra, Impala, hi. What's the difference? Cassandra is, is more yeah, of a storage a thing. <laughs> but <laughs> so, and then, you know, um, um, BigQuery is basically the same thing. Like you know, Hive. Yes. It has a, you know, BigQuery has 
I mean, I think that's gone now, but at that time, uh, you couldn't just run BigQuery on top of an object store like GCS or S3. You had to import the data to a special columnar format and optimize it to be able to run queries. So it's, in that sense, it's kind of like Hive. But I think now maybe you might be able to run it directly on top of... Uh, you can, but that's really slow if okay. you do it mm, like all right. that. But in short, it's, it's like a hundred or a thousand times faster than Hive almost, right? For, for the same type yeah, of well, data? I mean, especially the, the latency was really impressive. So yeah. you, can, you can breeze through terabytes and terabytes of data in you know, 10, 20 seconds. Yeah, uh, almost petabytes of data yeah. sometimes. So it's really parallelized and you know, basically you know, Snowflake, what Snowflake does today, BigQuery was, you know, Redshift was another product from Amazon with a similar it was more cumbersome to work with because BigQuery was also schemaless, which is another important aspect. Redshift was not, if mm -hmm. I remember it. Yeah. So it's more relational based. So you can mix, you know, schemas in the same table in BigQuery and still query it. Yeah, really cool stuff. And it's if I remember correctly, it also BigQuery is this kind of hierarchical system where you have some low leaf servers doing the 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 low uh, what do we call it? The the uh, the first kind of data processing, but it's being aggregated in number of steps before we actually can answer the SQL query that you have. Yeah, exactly. So that proposed it. we did that in in high performance computing. It's called a tree reduction. Mm -hmm. So you it's like a log n type of algorithm. Uh, but with BigQuery and these systems, you can also do what's called predicate push down. So if you have a where clause, a filtering, you can push that down to the leaf node, and then you get a massive parallelization of those type of is especially if you're doing joins and things you want to filter down your input data before you do the join and that's where these columnar stores and predicate pushdowns come because very powerful yes but in short you can say you know moving from on-premise to google cloud uh, in general for spotify um, one of the biggest benefits was bigquery would you agree i would agree i mean at least in the beginning because i left uh, when, you know, services were being, I think the other one was the hosted storage, you know, I don't know what they're nice. using today. And they were discussing using Spanner, mm. but, you know, Google, those type, instead of operating Cassandra, which was the, you know, bread and butter we had, there was a lot of pain keeping it together. So, but I mean, maybe they were looking into Kubernetes and these type of things when I left. So I don't know what they're running today, but, but in the beginning, uh, you know, a term that uh, you have used and we have used quite a lot is a lift and shift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in the beginning, it was basically trying to lift and shift saying, you know, we have Hadoop clusters running on premise. Now we're running Hadoop clusters on Google yeah, cloud not and so not much. really transitioning to the Google cloud services, but just, you know, moving to yeah, the but virtual also the, machines. The whole ingestion pipeline was really the whole pub subsystem of, right. of uh, GCP was also extremely beneficial because we used to run these large Kafka systems, you know, ingesting, you know, all the logs, everything, the clients, you know, millions and millions and billions of messages. Yeah. And uh, with the pub sub on, GC on GCP, now I'm making your commercials for Google yeah. here. <laughs> it's really, it actually was a big step forward in terms of, having that hosted and managed and also data flow, the other thing. I mean, doing the data flow, which they, to my knowledge, are, are doing much more now uh, after actually doing the uh, lift and shift first to just run Hadoop on, on Google Cloud and then actually shift into data flow where everything is managed for you, of course, it's a big benefit, but it took some time to, as I, as far as I remember. Yeah, and also, I mean, the whole, don't forget also the whole um, GDPR compliance work mm -hmm. that Spotify has to go 
when go through also work. Yeah, um, I'm eager to go to the safe harbor kind of problem, but let's not go there yet, perhaps. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, any other highlights from the Spotify days that you'd like to, to mention before we move into Karolinska University Hospital? Days? I, mean, it's, I mean, what I remember is just the whole uh, environment there, you know, with lots yeah. of, you know, of course, I mean, there's so much money flowing through the company, so, you know, you could spend there was no limits, you know, yeah. if we want to hire 100 people, we hire 100 people. Or if I remember one uh, member in our, our group as well that, that ran this uh, super, super duper machine on Amazon Cloud and he never used it. And it was like more, like twice his salary per month in mm. cost. And it was just running there. No one really uh, knew that it was running there. <laughs> you know, they, they they didn't care that much about the cloud costs. No, it, it was just point. grow, 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 grow the company, yeah. you know, and, you know, yeah, so, so that was, I mean, and then, but it's most of the people you remember, uh, yeah. the colleagues and, you know, things you did. Um, but, but there, there is a quite extreme growth phase this. So we, we, you, you were seeing some numbers, how many people was recruited per week, you know? So there, there, there's also something living in a company that where, where you have that because that has a lot of yeah, I mean the, implications. From I remember there was, first of all, there was the whole New York Stockholm divide. So we were divided, you know, and it was really, in some sense, especially on the data side, a little bit of a conflict, you know, the, new, the US people. Competitions, wanted, yeah. Competition or conflicts on how to solve certain problems. And of, of also, also, of course, the Swedish versus US culture on, you know, ma managing and, mm. and doing things. And so, so, you know, I don't know, but, you know, from my perspective, you know, Spotify got more and more, you know, Americanized, <coughs> you know, and more governed, especially after the uh, stock introduction of the IPO. Yeah. Um, you know, <coughs> it's, uh, and also um, for me personally, you know, I was mostly interested in the music experience and making a good products. So I, I spent a lot of time on the, like the catalog pages, artist right. pages. So I, I, one point I, I produced all the top charts on Spotify. That was me doing those, you know, putting together the charts. So I was kind of into the whole album experience and it quickly, you quickly realize that that's not where the money is. And, you know, they're not going to prioritize, you know, work on improving, you know, how Tchaikovsky is, you know, if you search for him, you know, you get the perfect experience. It's, it's, it's other things. So. That was one of the reasons I, yeah, you know, I'm kind of, and also I was kind of done with the whole thing. Yeah. And you were there for, for a long time, like uh, eight seven, years? seven years, seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And how did you get in contact with the Karolinska University Hospital? Yeah. That was, so I was kind of looking for other opportunities and, uh, I decided I, you know, wanted to do more, you know, I was looking into climate or healthcare uh, to uh -huh. do something meaningful completely so. different and have some um, some more purpose mm -hmm. and then um i uh, ended up seeing a ad an ad where they were looking for architects and uh, i thought why, why not and, and what does an architect at karolinska actually do <laughs> yeah so i mean what I've learned is like in public government, government or public sector in Sweden, architects are usually, you know, in a lot of places you're dealing with, uh, buying mostly about procuring 
buying products on the market and then putting them together. So, and also governing the whole integration aspects, the, you know, writing requirements and testing and, you know, piecing together. So it's more about kind of tying together and heterogeneous. Having the holistic view of everything yeah. fitting together in some way. Or? Exactly. And there are different flavors of the architecture role. Um, but what, and I, I used in, the, there's also some amount of strategy involved, mm. you know, if you, there are like the enterprise architects of the world mm. and they're, they're more into strategy and, you know, business values and, you know, um, there's also f very formalized, uh, you know, frameworks, your TOGAF and what have your, uh, frameworks of dealing with architecture. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a. I, I was, I never, you know, done this type of work and I was a little bit interested in what it meant and I picked up a few things, but what happened with, with my situation is that, uh, we now I'm much more, you know, operational mm. and actually working more with solutions and, uh, uh building things, designing things. Mm. Are you also coding these days? Or? Yes. Oh, a little nice. bit. Very nice. And, and just to was this a choice? Sorry, was this a choice? Yeah. So I mean, so you, this is not where this is happening. We need to go conc more concrete. So it's it's it was part of the st a strategic uh, initiative or bet where mm -hmm. we really wanted to uh, be more um, hands on, hands on, and gather more actual knowledge of of you know IT mm -hmm. in general. So. Um, so Karlinska has had a, you know, BI team, data warehousing team for a long time and which is really, you know, um, so the hospital has been doing data driven, it's very data driven in, in a lot of sense when it comes to producing healthcare. That sounds really interesting and, and I want to explore that a bit more, but let's just speak for people that don't really know what Karolinska University Hospital actually do. Yeah. Okay. Can you so speak a bit, you know, how many people work there? You know, what are their specialties? <laughs> what do, how does it relate to Karolinska Institute or something? Exactly. Or? So, um, Karolinska Hospital has been around for, I mean, hundred years or so, 150, oh, really? you know, in different forms or shape. It, mm -hmm. it started out as a military hospital. Okay. Um, but it's really the largest hospital in Sweden. So, um, we have two sites in Stockholm, one in Solna, you know, NQS, <laughs> Nya Karolinska and in Huddinge mm -hmm. called Huddinge Sjukhus, but it's same, the same hospital. And, uh, you know, since a couple of years, we have a mission that's called, we are supposed to be highly specialized healthcare. Okay. Okay, interesting. So, you know, you remember maybe the reform in Stockholm uh, with Nära Akuter and so they're trying to uh, differentiate the the kind of healthcare workload. So mm -hmm. Karolinska does, we do a lot of uh, things. We're the only place in Sweden where you can get certain types of treatments. Right. And also... Can you give some example of what they're... No, uh, not really, but it's more of these rare diseases and, you know, very complicated mm -hmm. procedures. Uh, especially surgical procedures that requires expertise. Um, cool. But then, um, we're also a university hospital. So that means that we, you know, train a lot of doctors and nurses, mm. um, and also do a lot of clinical research. Mm. So there's a medical university called Karolinska Institutet. 
which is ne- oh, just across the street, the street on, in Solna. And uh, they're a medical university, so they train doctors and do medical research. And a lot of the senior professors are also physicians at the hospital. Right. So in a t- typical sense, all like the clinical trials when it comes to medication or new ways of treating or trying out there performed at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we do publish a lot of things. It's, it's really a research, close to research. Right. And, and if we just compare a bit to the AI world a bit and, and the research being done in AI, you know, that is to, to a large extent being moved into industry in some way. And the tech giants performing a lot of the research and the normal universities is um, diminishing in some ways at least. Would you say the same applies for medical uh, hospitals? No, I mean, there's always been the pharma industry. Mm. And this is really not my speciality. But I mean, there are a lot of uh, pharma industry and, you know, new types of treatments. Mm. Uh, Of course, they need to try those, especially these highly specialized. I mean, there are really advanced new treatments coming out um, uh, where like one dose could cost 5 million kroner, mm. like for advanced cancer treatments. So it's, it's, um, but I, don't, I wouldn't say uh, clinical research is very much focused around the medical universities. Uh, by, so that's, you know, so we, so KI, the institute is ranked uh, number six in the world, I think. Oh, really? That's really, really good. And the hospital is number seven in the world, according to Newsweek. So we're really impressive. So we're number three in Europe. Uh, mm. How they measure this, I don't know. <laughs> but is it publication based? You think, or is yeah, it's I don't know how it's outcome based publication. Uh, they ha- this Newsweek doing these type of rankings. Yeah, uh, we should be proud in Sweden. Yeah. We have you know surprisingly good universities mm-hmm. and companies in Sweden compared to Europe and, yeah. and the world. Actually, but, but I, uh, my my dad um, is a doctor, but also. Medical doctor. Medical doctor, but he's also a PhD or, uh, what heter det sen då? Docent. Uh, but in f- uh, physiology. So he did both. And I always understood that, I think here is quite different to AI and that type of research, where I think there's one trend, where where I think the, the hospitals play a quite large role and and these uh, uh, institutes that are closely connected to the hospital because i mean like you have you have the hopkins you have several like where the real medical research is done is always connected also to a, a hospital yeah, but there are two two important things first a lot of the data used for ai is produced at the hospital right mm. yeah, because that we treat about 10 10000 patients a week at karinska yes. and a lot of this data is you know manually produced typing in diagnostics and very takes a lot of time. And the other one is that if you want to validate something to be used at the hospital, usually that happens at the university hospital. Mm-hmm. So and we li- really are in the center of, of uh, trying to, you know, the whole, if you want to apply algorithms for real. And it's hard to open source to speak these data sets, I guess. So exactly. So, it, and, and that's, um, I mean, if I understand this correctly, so medical journals in Sweden are almen handling, which is a little bit weird. Yeah. So, weird. but they are regulated by secrecy. Mm. So, 
anyone really can get their own uh, medical record. Mm. Uh, and also when we do when you do research, you have to go through an ethical approval. Right. And then we also have to do what's called a menprövning. So if we have to do an integrity check to see if your integrity could be somehow harmed mm. by releasing data. And, and this is a real problem for us because especially with AI, you know, we can get these requests, somebody, you know, I want to have, you know, breast radiology images, everything for the last 15 years, mm. you know, <laughs> and we have to go through basically manually to make sure that we don't release you know, sensitive data. And so it's an ex extremely, uh, you know, cumbersome process. And it's interestingly enough, not something we are, you know, equipped. We just do it and it takes a lot of time for us. But here we have an AI sorting. We have new technology. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I, I hear it like Spotify. We have so many recruitments. So we need to automate. We need to systemize the whole process. This is a very natural step for a tech company to start with tech solving a problem. Yeah. But here we have typically a, a, a problem, right? Yeah. But and, we and should throw, and do we throw tech on it? Like used to No, I mean, the, the problem here is that you know, we have to understand that uh, this is what you call secondary use of data. So most of the data produced at the hospital is for, you know, treating the patients. It's about documenting what you've done. So the next doctor can understand what happened and, you know, that you, uh, the patient safety is the primary concern. And, uh, you, sometimes it's just free text and, you know, it's not very structured and this is a, you know, then we come into medical informatics and about how to structure this data. But remember the old handwritten medical journals, you know, it was, it's, um, really about, um, documenting and then when you can't just take that data and you know understand it you have to understand the context a lot of the stuff we do is we take a request from a researcher and we try to understand just finding the data in you know we have 200 systems you know where where is this data and you know how is it format you know how how is can we you know get this data so it's it's very very complicated but i don't know there's a guy in at Stockholm University who is doing NLP mm. for the uh, the identification of medical journals. Oh, so like anonymizing yeah. the so trying to find personal identifiers in uh, in you know free text. Right, oh, that sounds super important. <laughs> awesome. Um, before you know, I'd like to move into the data drivenness of Karolinska, uh, but before that, I mean, I think we have this spend some time on the whole Corona part as well. You were there during the Corona years as well. Uh, did you notice that in some way or were you luckily disconnected from it or? I mean, the, it was really, you know, for my colleagues working at on in, uh, in the, yeah, the clinical. that's okay. a really tough. I mean, for us, it, we didn't notice, we tried to do what we could. Um, there was a lot of, bus in the beginning around, you know, the safety of mm. the masks and everything. And so there was a little bit of support there for us uh, to sort that out. And then um, there was also a little bit on setting up the testing and, you know, making sure, but it's, it wasn't, I mean, some of my colleagues worked more than others, but me personally, I wasn't that. Okay. So you weren't that affected? No, mm. no. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, 
What, what do you think in general about Corona? Do you think that there, there will be no more waves or what's your take on future Corona impact on, on Karolinska? I mean, th this is a disease we have to live with now. So at Karolinska, it's just, you know, there's no special treatment anymore. It's just one of the diseases that we have to deal with. Right. Um, this is interesting because we have a, in this way, we are sort of in a new normal. We are not in a pandemic mode. We're in a new normal mode. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> and I mean, at, at the hospital, they deal with other types of, you know, regular flus and, you know, lots of different uh, diseases. So, um, but it's nice to hear that Corona is starting to become like a norm or it sort of become a, not an exception to the, the other type of diseases that we still have. Yeah, but it's still a problem, you know, in the society, if you're, you know, unvaccinated, yeah. it's not a good thing because those are the people we see coming up, you know, and being hospitalized. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, uh, but this time we got lucky, you know, the next time it could get a lot worse mm. in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, how it spreads and, you know, the effects right. of it. And there's cool. still a lot of interesting research on the you know, long-term COVID and you know, right. this type of what happened. And there's going to be a lot of active research activity, you know, I think, afterwards. Do you think the whole, you know, rush to vaccines for Corona was rushed too much, so to speak? Do you think there will be some kind of unforeseen effects that we are going no, to I see? No, I completely or? trust these guys. I mean, I think that in, if I understand correctly, the theory you know, understanding the virus, that was just a week's work, yeah. you know, understanding, okay, this is how we fix the vaccine. And there's just compliance and going mm. through manufacturing. So, I mean. So you're not actually that scared that this was rushed. This was actually the hardcore problem was actually solved quite fast in terms of yeah, understanding I mean, the, the vaccine. You know, medical, it's very rigorous, this whole yeah. process. It was a 10x kind of time frame yeah but in this one case. interesting th thing happening at the hospital was that it was more of an all all hands on deck experience mm. which brought the hospital together mm. right because we all had to dig in yeah. and you know and hospital we we enter you know war mode mm. <laughs> yeah for real so basically uh when it was at the worst it's called stabs läge or mm. whatever exactly. then um you, uh, there's just one guy controlling the entire hospital. So all, all management, you know, is shortcutted. It's just to be, be extremely efficient on a day by day basis to use like military all the style. Yeah, military yeah, style. Set up the talk. Yeah. So that was, I mean, I wasn't part of that to say, but it's still, um, one of the effects now is that we want to keep parts of that efficiency in decision making. Work, exactly. Working together and being more, um, you know, um, and you know, working together more as a hospital. Interesting. So, okay, moving back to the topic about being data driven, and, and uh, I guess you know, if you try to compare perhaps you know Spotify and the way they are trying to be data driven, and I think that they are you know rather good at that compared to a lot of other companies in Sweden at least. If we start with the question, you know, basically, what is the difference of being data driven in a university setting compared to? Or like hospital setting compared to the Spotify setting. Well, uh, well, first of all, I mean, a modern hospital is is more of a factory or a production line. Mm -hmm. It's about you know you have inflow of patients and you know you have acute care coming in you know and then you have elective care mm -hmm. where you're booked, and it's really about managing the wards 
you know, where to put people. Right. And, and also keeping track of costs and efficiency, scheduling personnel, you know, all the, you know, resources, you know, medications, you know, operating theaters, sterilization, you know, logistics. Mm-hmm. It's a big, big production line, you know, and, and on the same time, we have to take care of patients, you know, the human uh, caring part. So, so could you, could you phrase it like you have some kind of plan and some other more acute unplanned treatments that you have to perform? And exactly. Then you have to so, I mean, the, you know, if you have a big trauma, you know, yeah. a car accident and you need treatment, you have to have standby. And also, so it's, it's very, very, very complicated. And, you know, the, we are struggling to understand how to do this efficiently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I think data could be interesting here to see patterns and understanding. And, you know, also things like, you know, there's been a lot of, um, one interesting metric is like length of stay predictions. Cool. Length of stay. Yeah. So if you want to know if a patient comes in, you know, how long time will they be in the ward? I know. Is this for planning from a logistical point of view? Uh, how many? Exactly. If you, if you know you when have? a people is person is likely to be discharged, you yeah. can plan for that to make predictions. Right. Um, so I'm not saying that we have that in place, but it's one of those metrics you, you can look at so just as a simple example. Mm. And, in, and today, would you say it's more like intuition or experience kind of based kind of? Yes. Yes. I would say. I'd just like to add like a Spotify metaphor here. And, and I think it could be interesting to see uh, you know, how that compares to hospital case. But I remember one point in Spotify, we, we sat down a number of product people, like 30 of us. And then we were, no, 20 of us. And, and then we were presented with 30 different A-B tests. So in Spotify, we, of course, we did do A-B tests all the time to, si- to try to see if a change in some kind of product will improve or decrease the, the user experience in some way. And then we were presented with these um, 30 different A-B tests and we were to guess as people at that time, uh, will this A-B test be an improvement or a decrease in user experience? And uh, and then we were presented with a case and, and we measured you know, how many people guessed the right thing. And, uh, I, you know, you have 50-50, you know, chance to, to guess the right thing. And I was assuming, yeah, I thought I could guess like 75% correctly or something. And and we did the whole thing. And it turned out that the average performance of these 20 people was 39%. If you were to put an ape in the room that had no clue what the test was about, they would have scored higher than we would. And, and in some ways, it, it demonstrates, you know, the danger of being too in, intuition-based, you know, decision-making uh, rather than having data-driven decisions. Yeah, but then you kind of assume that, that these A-B tests were correctly performed, you know, <laughs> that they were statistically True. independent, you know, had the correct sample sizes. And, and, uh, and these kind of uh, tests, were, A-B tests were actually, you know, selectively <laughs> chosen to be yeah. a bit um, extreme. Yeah. So, sure. But still, it, it demonstrates you know, the danger potentially of having too much intuition-based decision-making being made. Yeah, but then if you're talking about healthcare, it's not about you know, being a machine. You have to take other considerations in the patient. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not the black and white you know, factory. You have, there are a lot of personal choices and you know, you know, you're sick. And so it's, it's not that easy to make 
you know, super data driven. I mean, when it comes no, to okay, production okay. planning. So let me say, okay, one other thing that we, we said, you know, we can differentiate between being data driven, being data first, um, or, or data only uh, versus being data first. Sorry, you could take those two. Uh, or data none, I guess. Data none mm. is basically intuition-based. Uh, data first is saying that you use data, but you always have human in the loop. And being data only is like you, you don't even care about the human you know, understanding. And I guess in your case, you know, having data only would be super dangerous, in, in especially in a medical setting. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I mean, there are not any, it's not even close, I would say. Yeah. But at least having the data driven that or data first kind of approach where, where you at least you use data as some kind of input to the humans to make a decision. Yeah, I mean, I mean there are like if you talk about the, when we apply AI today at the hospital, mm -hmm. so one thing we have an, a, a project now where you look at lesions in the brain for right. MS and you want to you know see how they grow over time. Mm -hmm. And um, then you want to compute their size in the volume basically and right. on a, you know, a 3d rendering mm -hmm. and in uh, a segmentation image segmentation algorithm can do that much more efficiently than a human right so it's 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 more about doing very accurate you know and using ai and tools especially on imaging for segmentation understanding finding things that the human eye can't see mm -hmm. but there will always be a human in the loop verifying right. that okay yeah you're right you know i see it now yeah. but 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 let's can we categorize sort of the the, the main st structural use case categories of ai in a hospital setting let let me try mm -hmm. so i think you have one category which is ai applied in relation to uh, a therapeutic approach like what you explain now so the, here we have a, a, a medical condition and we are trying to use AI to improve the process around that. Um, then we have uh, data and AI, which is related in different categories around hospital administration or ho hospital operations. So, so what I'm saying is we have a lot of different use cases, but we can put them in the cluster of you know, therapy, you know, mm. how, how we, are, how we become better at treating patients. Well, it's, it's, it's both diagnostics. <clears throat> yeah. Diagnostics. Finding out. And there's also making a decision based on data. Yeah. But for what I'm trying to say is this is in relation to diagnostics and making a, you know, making the patient well, this is one big area of how we use AI in, 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 in different ways and cancer, you know, spotting cancer, all this, you know, is in simple example, but here we go into another area, which is to me, hospital administration or operations. Yeah. And here we can have several clusters. I would argue that you can with data have a one cluster, which is really about automating wasteful, really stupid work. So AI, AI and algorithms, whatever, you know, uh, let's not use the word RPA, but you know what I mean? I'm, I'm talking low life, automation. stupid automation, AI for automation in hospital operations. Yeah. And then I would argue that you have a huge field of AI for optimization in many different ways from logistics to planning to, uh, you know, flow of patients mm. to the core KPI, you know, of, of patient. So. I, I don't know. I mean, like for me, it's, it's all over the place when I hear these different, you know, we hear cases, but diligently driving automation, 
hospital operations optimization and then patient you know for yeah, me and, it's and a and very simple obviously one of the big areas nlp and mm. you know lot of stuff now is dictating voice and then somebody transcribing that that could be text. that would be its own category and even. also in a lot of situations you're tied up with your hands and right. you know having an, a voice interface mm. is also very interesting and mm. there's a lot of activity there in, in hospitals understanding you know these type of Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good learning that in general, pe- people keep confusing AI as yes. something that is going to replace humans. It's not no. really about that at all. It's about having another tool that allows you to work with data in a more efficient way and just have another way to represent yeah, but I, data. I, I right? really want to talk about, you know, more in a little bit more specific. If you're talking about recommender systems, mm-hmm. segmentation, clustering, regression, yes. And you know predictions. It's more interesting to see how you can apply those type of machine learning techniques mm. instead of just talking AI in general. The, but isn't this the problem that as long as the politicians and and whatever who's in charge or hospital administration, they are not. We, we are living in this high level executive, ten thousand feet. You can't work with AI in this level. You need to go down to the concrete yeah. mathematical problem. Exactly, but and and it starts with the data. Yeah. So that's been our, you know, we really have to take control over the data and you know understand it because one major difference with healthcare is like hospitals like Karolinska is going to be here in a hundred years, two hundred years, three mm. hundred years. Mm. People are going to get sick. It's it's not like we're going to go bankrupt. Mm. So it's really we are collecting data for the prosperity, you know, for everybody in Sweden. But and it it it's. We also have to do that correctly. You know, it's a big responsibility to uh, to do that in a in a good way. Oh, I, I, can I? Can I? I, I need yeah, to bite my tongue now. I yeah, need to bite my tongue. We don't have that much time left. So, but something quick, perhaps. We talk in in the in the latest AI strategy document coming out of the government. Uh, I don't know who who I read it. Uh, AI Sweden posted something it's from the government in in October quite recently we talk a lot about open data right we need to have open data and of course that is a great idea and and great to say that but to me open data is all about data management and the technicalities of how we're going to build these systems or i i don't know i mean like we're talking yeah, so, about this as something simple yeah, so obviously we'll- yes but the problem we need to talk about is data management Yeah, I mean, we, we are talking about, you know, what we are looking into now is to you know, have more unified interfaces and structure around data so you can query it and understand mm. what we have, an API-driven approach. Mm. Exactly. So for me, open data is more about, you know, our role in society, what mm-hmm. type of data we could share. So in a pandemic, I would argue that would be beneficial to release data on from quality registers or whatever for people to use and it's more about democracy and being transparent and you know as a government agency so we're not kind of hiding anything or doing no we can use stuff but what i'm trying to say is exactly this this is great but it will it will not give any value if you don't have the fundamental architectural no, there's, approaches there's no point of releasing open data which when you, you can't, can't use it. it you don't understand it and touche So, so that's the. I think it's more important to work with closed data yeah. than open data. Actually, I, I, I agree, but hundred percent. Okay, sorry. Um, 
Awesome. And I'm trying to, I would like to move also into the challenge, challenges that you have in, in uh, Karolinska Hospital when working with data and AI and, uh, you know, when it comes to procurement or these kind of regulations, etc. Yeah. So one of the problems we're seeing, you know, there's a big trend now with cloud moving to the cloud and especially startups in the AI world, they all go to the cloud yes. first because there's no point of them doing data sentence, buying GPUs and, you know, and it's a real problem for us because of Schrems and this whole business with um, regulation and EU fighting the yes. US and yes. say backdoors. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we can't really put, you know, a lot of these systems require you to take the data from the hospital through a gateway, upload it to the cloud, mm. do scoring, training, whatever. Do you actually do that on Karliska? To do you use any cloud services today? Yes. You are? Huh? Nice. But we do careful analysis, uh, and it, we, it's nef- definitely not broadly used. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are. Few. But you do have an, a number of on-premise machines as well. Yeah, so, so that's our strategy now because we see there's a limit to what type of applications we can do with these type of vendors. So mm-hmm. when you want to do more interesting things, combining data, um, you our only option that today is to do it on-prem. So we've been investing the last year heavily on. Um, kind of a modern cloud, private cloud uh, infrastructure. On-prem cloud. Yeah. yeah. So it's based on Kubernetes and which one, if I may ask? Do you have any specific uh, on-prem Kubernetes no, provider? So, yeah. So we work with Red Hat OpenShift. Nice. And um, we're really trying to build an environment where you can work cloud natively mm-hmm. and with modern technology uh, on-prem. So it's. A hospital, we have a lot of hardware resource. We have, you know, power, compute rooms, you know, it's, it's not, it's a big, you know, Karlinska's uh, budget is around uh, two and a half billion euros. So euros yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So it's per a year. Yeah. So it's like a big, we, you know, we can afford to invest. Uh, and if you look at things like, we store petabytes and petabytes of data. And, you know, if you go to public cloud services, it's not really the case that it, it becomes cheaper for us. If we, if we have the power and we have the computer rooms, we can, when we come to that volumes, it becomes cheaper for us to do it ourselves. You know, what becomes maybe is these big tape robots. And when you come to like cold storage mm-hmm. and that's where the cloud vendors really can press, you know, we have to make very large investments to. Mm-hmm. Those type of things. But how, but how how are you tackling this? Because it's it, it is technology, there's data, there's processing, yes, there's so governance, this is operations, so. this is competence, talent, the team. Are we going to go monolith? Are we going to go distributed, mm. modular? No, so, so yeah, so we're we're kind of hedging now on. We have to do more development ourselves, and mm. maybe more understand, you know, be more. Um, modern to meet the requirements, especially for our highly so specialized even, mission. So even you need to become a little bit more a software company yourself. Exactly. So we are recruiting developers Fantastic. now. Fantastic. So uh, our we have regular full stack, you know, developers. We have about you know ten now, and a, a lot of people coming in. Is that being organized in a central yes. group? Yeah. And so um, so we are, you know, doing also agile. DevOps, you know, these type of methods. So we're doing. But this is a huge shift because you started with saying that, well, one of the biggest differences when you go to Karolinska, you're stitching 
someone else's systems together. Yeah. It, it's more about buying these systems. And what you're saying is that route will not take us the whole way when it comes to data. No. Why, why not? Uh, I, I fully agree with you, but why mm, not? Well, I mean, if you talk in the broader picture, you know, um, these monoliths, they are ecosystems in themselves. Mm. And basically you are uh, putting your bets on that this vendor can meet all your demands yeah, within yeah. their ecosystem or budget. But if, if you want somebody who has any kind of leverage in the market, you go to these huge American companies and they have hundreds of customers. And why would they support your particular use case? And we have problems with Swedish regulations, different. So there are, so our approach now is to provide more of a platform approach or a data approach where we want to structure data and then, you know, modularly build applications on top of this API platform. This to, is fantastic to deliver. in my opinion. So we are building that platform now, extremely interesting work. And it's one of, I mean, this unheard of. This, is, this is unheard of in this space, right? Yeah, so it's a big bet from us and we're really focusing. And so we're really trying to find the right people to help us. I think is this, if we can pull this off, it will be a game changer. I think a lot of uh, organizations in the public sector in Sweden is, is uh, actually trying to do the same, but they very few have uh, the resources to, to try to do it properly. And Karolinska, I think, is one of the few that actually yeah, but do because have Our BI team has been there for, you know, we've been doing development and supporting decision-making uh, for 10, 15 years. So we have a tradition of developing around data. What we're doing now is to kind of expand that into applications as well. But, uh, but to me, what you, the storytelling you're doing now is something I never heard in the public sector because people are buying, trying to stitch things together without caring about data management, integration, or data products. Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's... <laughs> Yeah, and, and we are a little bit fortunate because there there is a standard that's been around for quite some time that's finally gotten mature enough so it becomes usable. So there's like an international standard for storing clinical data. It's called Open EHR, which is a quite important uh, piece of the puzzle. Yes, very important, and um, and there's also. In the US now, there's another interoperability framework called HL7 FHIR, F-H-I-R, which is uh, being mandated by the US government for hospitals there to interchange data. So oh, standardization is being pushed, you know, right now, just the last two, three years. You've put up so many Pandora's boxes that I want to dig into after, after work, maybe. Standardization and what level to do it on protocol really yeah, Detail so, so versus open HR is really, the approach there is really interesting. So you have a, a common reference data model, which is you know uh, dedicated for storing clinical information, and then it's coupled with a you know informatics framework and a query language. All right. So it's an entire system, and the idea is that it's two segmented in two parts. So you can do the modeling of the data. You know, typically if you have a form where you enter clinical information when you're treating a patient. Mm. You as a clinician can sit in a low-code tool and build that, you know, form. Mm. And then, you know, this, it gets serialized or stored 
in a very interoperable format in the standard reference model. So I mm-hmm. can just take that thing, put it in some other hospitals, open HR system. It would it sounds be, too good to be true. <laughs> yeah. but I, I hope it's, it's correct. But yeah, to having that kind of standard, of course, is uh, sounds like an awesome thing. Okay, so time-wise, we're really, you know, getting to, to the end here a bit, and, and we have so many more topics that we would like to cover. Um, and uh, should we take at least uh, and try to cut uh, this a bit short, but it's, it's a big topic, so it's really hard to do. But, okay, so speaking a bit more about the legal challenges when it comes to data, and uh, specifically about EU versus US and being able to move data back and forth, um, There are a number of challenges there, right? I mean, it's, GDPR is just one thing for us. Safe yes. Harbor. So, um, and we've been following this whole development for a long time mm. with SHREMS 2 and, and, and those, you know. I think we need to ex- you know, yeah, unpack so, that a bit. What, what does that mean? So, um, if I get this correct, no, I'm not a lawyer to start <laughs> off with, but um, the GDPR and the basis to transfer data to a third party country, you have three, op- we had three options. You had what's called Cloud Act or Privacy Shield. It was a legal framework for doing that. And you had... That was in 2016 or something, right? Yeah, so Cloud Act, but Privacy Shield was really the Schrems case. So we're yeah. going to get there. But then yeah. we have a standard contractual clauses, SCCs, which is basically the only thing left. And then you have... Um, some other type of, I forgot the name of the third option, but it's not that commonly used. So most cloud services and most vendors now rely on standard contractual clauses, which is the legal framework. And there is an activist, Max Schrenz in Austria, who sued Facebook for you know, violating GDPR, especially around the, the privacy shield agreement. This was in, in 2015, 14? Uh, I think there was it? there's SRAMS 1 and SRAMS 2. So SRAMS yeah. 2 is the recent one. Yeah. And there was a ruling in, in Ireland where Facebook legally in Europe is you know, located. Mm. And we basically violated Privacy Shield. So you can't use that framework for transferring data anymore. And uh, the but, repercussions but, of this, we haven't... Wasn't it, the first one, wasn't it something like uh, when SRAMS you know, first... Uh, sued basically Facebook, I guess, and, and then he won in court, in the EU court in some way. And they had a safe harbor law coming up after that, right? I, I don't remember those, the early ones, but the interesting piece now is that, so after Privacy Shield fell, mm. and that was really an important ruling, yeah, because the EU really put down the foot and said, you know, we can't allow NSA to have backdoors into and getting our data. Yeah. Period. Know? So it's the, it's called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or ESA, which is the, the really the problem. And what now the EU says, like for SECs, they say that if you're using SECs, you as a company have to make sure that the country receiving the data has an equivalent you know view on data privacy as the mm. eu mm. and you know if you look at <laughs> no this <one. laughs> with the us you know so i'm expecting SECs to be you know unless there's some new framework being uh, developed and you know there's a way of controlling uh, this access to data through this uh, fisa Yeah. But, but if we try to, I mean, it's a lot of technical terms here and a lot of legal terms here as well. But in short, 
it, it will limit the way that we can use cloud services in different ways, right? No, so I think the the problem is that um, uh, uh, there could be a court order in the US mm. where they have suspected terrorists, yeah, and uh, they can uh, you know, tell a cloud service that you know can you please give us data on this individual mm. and they can release that data without telling their customers. Yes. And, you know, Microsoft in their transparency report, they say that we do this hundred times a year, mm. you know, something. So they can't say it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we really don't know exactly. Uh, I mean, but if you think isn't the purpose of the problem from Karolinska's point of view is it, that it actually does limit the use of cloud services because they have this kind of exactly. Capability. So the legal people say, you know, we can't allow this to happen, yeah. e- even though the risk of you know it actually affecting one mm. of our patients. Mm. But it, but compliant wise, what we have, what our law says, how we what the integrity level we need to up t- up hold what we have promised, the promise and and the the service is not. Compatible in some no, in so it's, way. No, so it's really more the EU GDPR versus the US mm-hmm. and and their surveillance laws. And you know, there's no technical measures really that you can use. You know, there are cases where you can encrypt the data, store the keys on, on keep own, the keys, yeah. but then you can't process it. You know, you can mm-hmm. only archive it or store it. And so those are kind of okay. Or if you have completely anonymized data, which is not, you know, you can't detect it's a you know i think google cloud at least have now you know the the key management service to allow you to to store the keys yourself etc and they all all have it they all have it but the problem is they don't all have it but okay no no and but then that's just the first problem the other problem is uh we have also fentlets and secretess log stifting in sweden which is even more problematic because then so GDPR is a you know you get fines if you break GDPR yeah. you know nothing else you know it's a risk and you the media coverage you know so it's a big risk uh, but with secretess regulated information or secrecy mm. and that's a felony you, you can get convicted you know Anders you probably know about this you <laughs> keep a lot of secret information yes. and so there's actually a um, um, proposal now to add act, yeah. To add a new sekretessbrytande förbindelse mm. so you can allow other agencies or companies to technically process or store data. Even, if they, yeah. Even if they don't see it or whatever. And also it's, a, it's kind of a, they're trying to limit, so, so that's, that's the other law. And then in the healthcare sector we have patientdatalagen, biobankslagen. And a lot lot of other complicated... And and bottom line, paralyzation, right? And the bottom line line basically is that it's hard to make the legal frameworks keep up with the technical possibilities and um, to to make use of all the possibilities that technological advances are are, providing for us, right? One important thing in that that study with this new uh, framework for releasing data is that they actually put their foot down and said like outsourcing is a necessity. Mm. If you want to be a modern country, you know, all government agencies can't have their own data center. So they say that, you know, legally we can say it's a necessity. You have to be able to outsource some information. And then we don't have the legal framework for doing that when it comes to these type of sensitive data in Sweden. 
I think a problem as well is that the, the, the biggest and the best cloud providers that we have in the world is the, the American ones and, and the Chinese ones uh, as well. Mm. And we don't really have a European or certainly not the Swedish one. No, but you know, if you look right? at what happened in, in France mm. just a couple of weeks ago, so Thales, uh, this big security firm, they have a partnership now with Google Cloud mm. where they create a European, wholly owned European company uh, to avoid this whole legal, you know, yeah. so, the, uh, so, US the, so something here will happen. The European cloud, in some format, is, is the, uh, it, it seems like a necessity. Yeah, when you have this, what's it called, Gaia X as well. Mm, yes, the, um, it's Germany-based in France, and yeah. et but EU finest cloud. But but you have to remember, like the Amazons and Microsofts and Googles of the world. You know, they started out very very successful businesses. You know, ad sales. You yeah. know. Amazon, they just poured money into, I mean, I don't know, they invest hundreds of millions of dollars. How to catch you know. up? Impossible. I mean, I don't think people realize that all these kind of cloud services that we have today from Amazon, Microsoft and Google, etc., is that they basically open source the internal tooling that they have been using for 10 years before that. And it's so much work being, you know, poured into that before they actually. I mean, BigQuery was not built for Google Cloud. It was built for exactly. processing data inside Google yeah. to be able to sell ads to people. I still wish the best for Gaia X and other kind of European initiatives. And, you know, there is a Swedish one as well, trying to have some kind of Swedish public sector yeah. cloud. But provider. what we're trying but to do when we're really urging the vendors we talk to is at least do you know kubernetes type of deployments yeah. so we can work in a modern way because then you know you can technically also operate them on a public cloud yes. you know so kubernetes becomes the, so the containerized approaches means that we can yeah, exactly be more there are flexible. these interesting concepts now around uh, <coughs> operators which is a nice way of maintaining software on kubernetes which is really interesting and we're seeing some platforms like snowflake is maybe not uh, completely open, but at least you can choose your cloud provider. Mm. You know, Databricks is the same type of strategy yes. now. And but not on-prem though. So. No, exactly. So obviously because the, we can't on-prem provide the scale and all the, you know, services, mm. but um, so we are really looking into the modern solutions, which you can deploy using, you know, Kubernetes, things like, you know, Kafka is already there and there are a lot of other technology. I think we need to collaborate more in Sweden, in the public sector especially, to make sure that we have the pop proper like on-prem or at least some kind of off-American cloud solutions. Yes, so one of the ideas we're trying to pitch is, you know, get onto AI and algorithmic development early and to have a partnership with the... So a lot of the clinicians have ideas on what they want mm. to do. Mm. But instead of them going to a public cloud and being oh. locked into that, because that would be the same business decision to do. We have to provide an environment where they can work, collaborate, you know, on an on-premise setting, yeah. which we then can deploy on other hospitals in Europe and in Sweden. This is, I, I, I think this is a very exciting uh, proposition, Henrik. And, and, and I think for me, this is refreshing because I, I haven't heard, I, I, w I wasn't aware that you were going in this direction. And I think it's very, very, very interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a super hard problem we are trying to solve, right? But you are trying to look at it API-based. So we're really getting the people, the development into to the data instead of releasing the yeah, data. Yeah, that's the point. But I think a lot of um, 
agencies in Sweden actually are trying to do this. It's just that some are a bit ahead, more ahead than others, but, 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 but everyone but is trying to do but it. But then I would I argue... They can't really do it themselves. And I think how do we coordinate more. this? Because now, I mean, like knowledge sharing, double loop learning, how, how do we actually then get the fundamental problem following data in different ways? Yeah, exactly. Is so it, it some way not actually the architecturally a generic problem? Or... or well, if you if you crack the code in Karolinska, why can't you use that in another setting? I think that there's so much details in the type of data; it can okay. be generally applicable to any type of data. No, no, no. But so technically, can't you build templates, scaffoldings, infrastructures, code out of what your guys are doing to reuse fundamentals to get faster starting? Okay, they need to have their yeah, own use I mean, case. If you, all this. If you look at machine learning and AI, there are of these types of frameworks, or you know, there's this. You know, Peltario might be one. I don't know if they deploy on on premise, but uh, yet, we have the Hopsworks yes. and the lot. You know, where they try to do these more. I think there's open data platform, something Red Hat does. We really try to put together an entire platform where you can do inference, model training, you know, feature management, and all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's oh. a big problem, and you know, the whole field of cloud computing in general is moving so fast, and you know, the the whole big tech giants are moving, of course, uh, in a pace that is really hard to keep up with. And um, but luckily, there are a lot of open source initiatives that makes it possible to at least move rather fast. But but it's super hard to keep up, right? Would you agree with that? Yes, I mean, biggest problem for us now is to get the right technical people. Yeah. Developer skills uh, so come you, to you, us. Are you trying to recruit? Yes. So hundred percent, or is that even feasible? No, but we have to. I mean, bring on. Now we're looking at more, you know, developer ops people. Developer data ops. Yeah, just to be able to manage the data. But so we're not actively searching for data scientists to do. No, no, this is data management data. This is data processing. So we have to lay the foundation of this platform, (laughs) and that's why what we're trying to build now. Uh, we also having a more application development yeah. where we do uh, systems to support, you know, back end front end engineers as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we're already over time, but but let's try to take some time for more philosophical topics as well, if we could. And um, one obvious question, we always bring it up, but we have spoken about it so much already, uh, which is the AI divide. And... Um, the general premise of this is basically that we have a few set of tech giants, you know, the, the Google, the Facebook, mm. the Microsoft, the Amazons, and the Chinese, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, etc. They are moving so fast, especially when it comes to cloud computing. Uh, and, and I don't think people realize how much work it is to have a proper working cloud service uh, in there. And, and, you know, the level of functionality that they have there so to to actually catch up with that is super hard. Do you think that kind of, if we call it AI divide or cloud computing divide that we have today, will it continue to increase? Or do you think it actually will be? I mean, it will increase as long as these companies can harvest data freely. You know? yeah. And th- that's really what's driving their innovation is that, you know, Facebook and Google, they can just bring in everything, you know. They don't click your terms of service agreement. And, and, then and that's, what, that's what's driving the development there. You know, as long as it's unregulated and they can make, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on it, they will just buy a bigger computer. And that's the way it's going to work. Uh, do the brain rain and, and buy other companies and continue to expand. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's just the mechanics of, you know, capitalism in this yeah. case. <laughs> so I don't think there's not much we can do and just hope that they can release 
you know, you know papers or being open about what, what they're doing. And so, so we can apply some of that, you know. And what's the, what, what's the strategy for the rest of the world to catch up or to sort of, because part of the AI divide, I think is the concern of when some few has the power in terms of knowledge or money or know-how according to the rest. I mean, like when, when the, when the concentration of power is so, yeah, but I mean, this we, is scary. Yeah, we have to stop falling for the baits. You know, we have to stop just, oh, Google is so, Gmail is so convenient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you can buy another email service that doesn't harvest all this data, you know, and, and, you know, track you <laughs> everywhere mm-hmm. and it's not worth it. You know, so people have to become aware of, you know, what you know, the, the, even the search engine, you know, there are actually alternatives. I don't use Google anymore at all. You yeah. know, duck, duck, yeah. So it's yeah. And so it's, uh, it works fine. I mean, let's do some marketing duck, duck go. <laughs> so there are alternatives. And I think that's the real problem. Why these companies have grown so large is that they, you know, Spotify, you know, is in similar territory. I mean, the real interesting piece about Spotify is that artists can understand their audience because, you know, suddenly you understand what people are actually listening to at every second, which is like a dream come true for commercial radio, you know. And but isn't Spotify in that case an exception to the rule about the AI divide that uh, even though Apple, Google, Amazon, all of them tried to make a music service that actually did work and could, you know, take down Spotify, they all fail. Yeah, but, but that's because it's not an AI problem. You know, it's, it's about well, get this partly, right? Yeah. But I think even recommendation systems, Spotify has, it has a slight advantage, but I don't think they're you know that great. Well, why do you think Spotify succeeded then? Why didn't it? They were first. It's that first mover advantage. It's, it's exactly. First mover and growing, you know, and mm-hmm. also being aggressive. One, as I see it, the growth has become mainly in expanding globally. Getting all the contracts and all the licenses expanding globally. And of, of course, it's a great product. And there's also the, the brand hype and, you know, being independent and, you know. They're cool. A little bit cool. So I think, but I, I wouldn't say, you know, from my experience, you know, all the A-B tests we did, you know, it's it's not, that didn't move the needle of Spotify's growth. You know, it was, was just market expansions, business things that... But okay, so but we can potentially still phrase it. There are some light in the tunnel that the AI divide will not continue to dominate, and all the services will be moved into more and more tech giants. There are uh, there are chances, there are possibilities for startups like Spotify to still compete, compete, right? Or yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's hard. Especially when it comes to deep learning or these type of brute force like GPT-3 and, mm. you know, who wants to spend 200 million <laughs> on training those models? And we're doing that in Sweden as well, you know. So. Yeah. So I don't know. It, I mean, I'm more interested in solving the right problem uh, that's beneficial. I, I mean, like that. You know, self-driving cars, yes, could be interesting, but a lot of stuff, you know, optimizing So sustainability or health is an interesting problem to be solved. Yeah, and I don't think we need humongous amounts of compute to solve a lot of interesting problems. But what what is stopping us to solve? You know, why why haven't we become better throwing data, building journal system for years? What is the fundamental problem? 
I guess as I said, Anders, I mean, there's this famous paper from Google in 2015. Yeah. It's, it's all data scientists and everybody's focused on like the small piece in the middle is <sighs> about the algorithm and, you know, hyperparameter tuning, whatever, but it's the whole piece around it. And that's where Google and those guys excel, you know, mm. managing the data exactly. and, you know, orchestrating Thank and you. quality. And no, but I think you're misunderstanding here because it's, that's really why tech giants are winning. Yeah. That's really why tech jump, uh, companies are yeah, open sourcing models and code because they know it's the 95% around the model that is really the hidden secrets of how to succeed. And, and of so, course, huge amounts of data. No, but, and, yes. and, but let, let me, let me flip it. You don't understand, Anders, <laughs> okay. because this is easy to understand in Spotify, which is a tech company. I understand that. And then I go to Karolinska or to Skåne or to Vattenfall, and they are completely disorganized in terms of understanding the holistic problem. Mm. So I would argue that Karolinska's biggest problem, Skåne's biggest problem when it comes to really get ahead is or an orchestration problem and understanding how to holistically, if I understand the reality of what you said, it's not this, it's not the parameter tuning, it's the whole thing. And then I say, okay, how do I solve the whole thing in in uh, Karolinska. Good luck with that. Yeah, but holistically, strat getting everybody to pull in the same direction and, and understanding their piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and that's what I think is the real problem. Yeah, and also trying to. I mean, the people I've been within Spotify learned a lot of these things. Yeah. what it takes to become as Lalleberg used to yeah. say. You know, Lars Alberson to get to this industrial stage yes. where, where these giants are mass producing these yeah. things, you know, just dealing with hundreds of thousands of data sets. This day. At the hospital, we're never going to get there because all our data is hand generated, you know. It's, it's, it's very totally different. Um, so, so for us, it's more about accuracy, quality, and, you know, being very, very close to, you know, doing the right thing. We, we, we can't just do, you know, whatever works, no. like a so recommendation you need to, so system. So it means also that when we understand the full picture, like we said, not only the the whole thing, you need to put that in the context of what this hospital business and how does that work? How would I industrialize exactly. this? So which is completely different. Data is not, they, I mean, Google's business is very, very different yes. from, from a hospital business. Of so, course. Uh, but the problem we have right now, in my opinion, is that the way we are organized and the way we understand and have the data literacy around these things, we have the wrong mandates, we have the wrong orchestration, we have the wrong different, different separation of IT supply and demand, vendors, we have no tech know-how, how to build stuff our own. So, so the starting point to even get started is so far behind without, it has, it's not a tech problem at all. No, in my opinion. I, I would agree. Uh, so for us is what we didn't even have infrastructure to do anything. Oh. So. We started with infrastructure. We had, you know, our BI team. We did, you know, analytics. We started doing predictions and, you know, looking at, uh, you know, have flows and so, so it's pretty mature. But to take the next step, we have to bring in more data, combine more data, uh, take a simple thing like in an emergency, if it's rain, snowing outside, we know more people are going to come in, you know. You know, we see the weather forecast, we can, you know, start preparing for that. So th there are all of these things that you can become more data driven. And But to actually do become data driven, I think we need to have the infrastructure in place as well, which is something that is strongly lacking, I would argue, in I, Sweden and in Europe and what the tech giants have. Yeah, but so we have 
like to take another example on that. So we are one of the few hospitals in the world that do whole genome sequencing mm. for um, treatment of rare diseases. Cool. And so that's a big investment area for us now, trying to bring that onto other types of diseases like cancer, mm. where you know genetic markers could be interesting to you know called precision medicine to yeah. individualize treatments. And other things. So not only personalized music, but also personalized medicine. Exactly. <laughs> and it's wow. about and, and that will require a lot of, you know, computational infrastructure, storing data and know-how. And also we have a, a, actually a functioning pipeline together with SciLife Lab mm, uh, that uh, we use. And so we are looking now onto you know, kind of factorizing that and mm. scaling it out and to bring on more interesting use cases. Cool. Let's, let's try to end on, on some kind of positive note, because I think we've written a bit negative kind of yeah, discussion. Fr here frustration about, came out <laughs> about, you know, the, the lack of, you know, how can we ever, you know, catch up? And, and we, we do know that the tech giants have so much more than the knowledge about the AI. It's also about the engineering expertise about having the right infrastructure in place to be able Holy to make use of it and, impl and implement it. And, and that is something that we're lacking. Exactly. But I, I just want to say that, you know, I read this quote that the 2010s would be remembered as, you know, where the talent of the world went into selling ads to people. It's, it's not a mission. Oof, I love that. That is another t-shirt. Yeah. But it's um, really like, I, I can't really say why you would be interesting working but for maybe Facebook that's, Google Maybe that ads. is the positive that people will, will uh, run out of energy to selling sodas like the, like the Apple quote, right? Or selling ads that people that would are, which are smart people wants more. Exactly. I mean, and that is maybe the saving. People Google and Facebook for, for the people that technique is yeah. not for the business. I don't think people are very engaged in selling ads, you know, no. yeah. so people want to do because it's a cool place to be and they have cool products. But I think at some point that has to shift, you know, have to think about why, you know, so the strategy is to make so Karolinska cool. When people get older, maybe, you know, they get tired of being in, in that business setting and they want to do something more important. Can we repeat what you just said, you know, move from selling ads to what to I mean, you said it's so have a better societal impact, you know, do something for, for everybody, you know, for but the people world. will grow tired of selling ads or something. And, I mean, the, now with Google, you know, you, oh, we are, we, Facebook, we're doing so much good for the world. We have all these services, you know, you I, can, I can, yeah, I can use Instagram and post pictures of you my kids. Ads. Yeah. So I think as soon as people start and even also people within those companies, mm -hmm. you know, is it worth it? And you know, take that knowledge and you know, move it down to where you can have a much bigger impact. So maybe if Karolinska and the, and the equivalents can be a little bit better at being attractive and sort of I mean, like now there's too far ahead to be even considered. But if you get a little bit better, so they have, oh, this is pretty cool stuff they're doing in Karolinska for a good cause. And they're, oh, Henrik Löv's storytelling, that was cool stuff. I mm. want to work there. I mean, like, it doesn't mean that you need to go the whole way, but they need to, they at least they need to get out of the dark ages. You exactly. Know? So, and and if you can get out of the dark ages, maybe you can flip it that the talent will come. Yeah. So we're really trying to have a strategy now where we need some kind of lab. It's, it's called bimodal IT. Is the, yeah, you know, yeah, I understand. The, you know, you have a development and, you know, you have to do prototyping and understanding, and then you have, you know, the solid foundation, you know, main, Every product company has a bimodal 
And so we, we, we only had one mode. Mm. So what we're doing now is to bring up the first mode and also building a better architectural platform and vision of delivering, you know, apps and a modernization of digitalization of all that. But I mean, like, this is the point. How many data engineers knew that we had some cool stuff going on here? I don't, I, I think you need, this is a good story. Yeah. And I, and I, we really need help, you know, and we're looking actively for people uh, to help us, you know, cool. I need somebody who can, you know, write Spark. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. To come to us and help okay. us. And it's hard to recruit also in the public sector as well. You know, cause we're, we're like competing with the Spotify's yes. and, you know, exactly. you know, we can't provide you with, you know, you know, stock options, you know, cool parties and, you know, <laughs> I'm done with that. So mm. I'm fine. I just, I love my work. So I, it's, um, it's, it's, but not everybody have, have People have other. No. Well, I think, you know, what you said, you know, 2010 and perhaps 2020 will be the time where people stop caring about ads and start caring about people. Right. I like that. I hope so. I think that could be an awesome thing. Henrik, what's next in your life? What's happening professionally, personally? Well, we just, I've just started this um, journey now and I want to see it through. So we keep, and I'm I'm not saying it's, you know, it's not, you know, smooth sailing by far, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work, but I'm really excited about this, you know, direction we're heading and, you know, me, we might fail, but that's okay. I mean, then at least we tried, but we really, we can't just not do this because you will only fail. So that's the, the thing we're doing now. Let's really try to do this for real. And, you know, and. The whole precision medicine, you know, is also very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I'm just... If the- anyone is li- listening to this and, and they really care about, you know, healthcare, how can they, you know, join or find more information about potential roles that you're hiring for or yeah, so we have in a, touch with a, that? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, but we have also an, an eight roles out mm-hmm. Now, eight roles. Yeah. Can you uh, name some roles? That you have? So we have data engineers looking yes. for data engineers, uh, BI development, a UX designer, mm-hmm. and I remember the everything there. But um, I guess I can post a link somewhere maybe yeah. to yeah. Sure. recruitment. So we're really trying to build uh, this the, the one legged more development um, culture, and you know we have started working on the infrastructure and. Mm-hmm. And you know, being a modern development mm. uh, organization. Do, do you have a specific sort of target goal vision for 2022? Or is there something that you sort of in, in your yeah, so budget we, and I plan mean, for yeah, next so year? What, what is what the we want to do is so key for us is to liberate data. So that's common in these organizations that data is siloed into these different systems. Mm. So now we're doing capturing and integrating this data and, you know, collecting it into these standardized APIs and building an application. That's really the goal for you know, a couple of applications that really can support the, you know, improving, automating the process of some internal flows in the hospital. And Sounds also, awesome. And yeah. I think, you know, other public sector or companies in Sweden that are interested, we should try to find a forum where we can share experiences and actually start collaborating because I think we are, too small for one as a country, but secondly, as organizations here to do everything ourselves, 
And we may not be able to share data, but we can share a lot of other things. And one of the things is just experiences, best practices, and perhaps even models at some point. At least, um, you know, if we start learning from each other about both mis mistakes and successes that we have, I think we can actually move surprisingly fast. And Sweden, I think, is one of the best positioned countries in Europe, at least, to actually make this happen. Since the great universities like Karolinska and other normal universities we have in Sweden, we actually do produce. And we also have a lot of venture capital like right. around <laughs> That's that true. we need to put into use in uh, to do the right thing instead of just... Equally you know. sexy as any other startup, mm. I'm telling you. Yeah. Henrik, anyone that you would recommend to join this podcast? That's someone that you'd like to listen to potentially here on this podcast. Well, if you really want to have somebody talk about, you know, who knows how it is to run a hospital, yeah. it's... Um, Kalle Konnerid Lundgren, who was used to be the operating manager of the hospital, he's now at Klarna. Oh, okay. So that will be maybe an interesting talk with him to see how he is, you know, um, <laughs> he's become how it. He is a surgeon, you know, okay. from the beginning, and he was, you know, extremely interesting in data drivenness and, and yeah. doing data analysis, and now he moved to Klarna. From Karolinska? Yes. So this is an interest. This is the other way. The other way around. <laughs> I, it I, is a bit strange. Th no, this is just amazingly fun. And he's no, he knows on his fingers how healthcare works. Right. And the problems with healthcare and, you know, the data in healthcare. And exactly. Sounds great. That's an awesome idea. That sounds perfect. Okay, cool. Thank you very much, Henrik. It's been a true pleasure. And uh, we already <laughs> went 20 minutes over time, but uh, we could have spoken for hours, I think, more. Uh, we have, uh, there were so we many rabbit holes to go down. We stuck in this whole uh, uh, computer architecture. No, but yeah, it was fantastic. Some fantastic. I think a lot of people learned a lot about you know the computer architecture and, and, and the differences between H different HPC kind of architectures and uh, whatnot. Awesome. Thank you again, Henrik. Um, let's continue with the after after work. Yeah. And uh, and best of luck with 2022 and Karolinska. Thank you. Thank you very much.